1: Oh, what a world, what a life, what a day. Saturday, December 17, 2022, have I got a show for you. Mitch Morrissey served 12 years as the elected DA of Denver. I knew him earlier during his decades-long service as a younger prosecutor, a deputy then a chief deputy. I did a lengthy interview with him that was amazing. I can't wait for you to listen. Our troubadour Dave Gunders has a song, A Sun Still Shining, in the middle of the show, between parts one and parts two of Mitch Morrissey. I'm going to play it for you sound of John Ramsey talking to Megan Kelly. John Ramsey, the father of jean Jean-Benet Ramsey, who was murdered Christmas 1996. 26 years later, he's back on podcasts pleading for the right thing to be done about the DNA in Jean Benet, he says it will solve the case. Who do I have on? Mitch Morrissey. Mitch Morrissey, who talks to me about Club Q, about crime in Colorado, about everything under the sun, but he was assigned the job of prosecuting the killer of Jean Benet. He was part of the grand jury brought there by Mike Kane. So many interesting twists and turns, and Mitch Morrissey told me things about Bonnet that I've never heard before, and I have followed the case closely. Personally, back in November 96, I got defeated by Bill Ritter, who went on to serve another term as Denver DA and then governor of Colorado. Mitch Morrissey succeeded him. But after I got in November 96, a little girl in Boulder, Jean Benet, was killed. I was requested to comment for various media types about the investigation that followed since I had handled a number of big cases and comment I did and follow the case I did. And when I heard John Ramsey say something to Megyn Kelly that the little girl was strangled to death and then later hit on the head... I thought that did not comport with my memory, and I get to ask Mitch Morrissey about that, and you can hear the contradiction. What does it mean? I'm not sure. That's up to you. But this is one of the greatest interviews I've ever had. Thank you, Mitch Morrissey. Thank you, Troubadour Dave Gunders. Thanks for listening. Enjoy. Enjoy. uh, LLC.com.
0: Now back to the Fred Silverman
1: Show. Hey, being a lawyer is a matter of judgment. You have to know the law, the facts, but good judgment is essential. If you don't understand how Donald Trump is culpable for the crimes committed in his name, then I question your judgment. I have the good judgment to question Donald Trump. If you want a lawyer like that, instead of a knucklehead who believes in the MAGA propaganda, call Craig 303 734 7156. 303 734 7156. I am Craig, Craig Silverman, a voice for victims.
2: Welcome to
1: Craig's Lawyer's Lounge. Gosh, this podcast is great. When I get to welcome back to Craig's Lawyer's Lounge an old friend. We've known each other for so many decades. I'm thinking about Mitch Morrissey getting ready for this. And I'm proud of the guy. He's accomplished so much and he's still a young man, Mitch Morrissey. Welcome back to Craig's Lawyer's Lounge.
3: Well, I appreciate the young man comment, Craig, but you know, I qualify for Medicare in the last I know, month, but so, it's, it's just like you know. high
1: school. If the guy's a year behind you, don't you always feel that way about them?
3: Yeah, yeah, but I appreciate it, and you know, always enjoy talk, coming on and talking with you. We talk about some some interesting things and things that matter, and so it's important to be, you know, I appreciate you inviting me on.
1: Well, it's special for me, and I appreciate it. Happy holidays, and it's a birthday present for me. This is my birthday. We talked about it the other day, and I'm a little pissed because I have so much to do, and I got wrapped up in your book, Denver District Uh Attorney's Office, A History of Crime... In the Mile High City, 1869 to 2021, Mazeltoff to Norm Brisson and Mitch Morrissey on this amazing book. I mean, it's a page turner.
3: Yeah, it's good. And if you know, it's got a lot of pictures too. So for people that uh, want to see who was actually committing those crimes, sometimes where they happened, uh, we've we, we tried to mix all of that in. And, you know, the format that we used, if you're interested in a particular person, you know, Phil Van size for instance. The, I love Phil Van know, We'll get to him, but. Go he, read that. Go read that chapter first. I mean, that that's kind of the way we set the book up. So, you know, you can jump around and and uh, look at who you're interested in. It's not really a book you need to read from front to back. And. Uh, hopefully people will really enjoy it.
1: Right. But if you've got a little egomania in you, and of course I do, I was telling my son who's thinking about being a lawyer that you have to have a little bit of a show off in you, right? Nobody forces you to take to a microphone or do a podcast or become a trial attorney, right? You have to be willing to uh, talk about these things. But Oh my gosh, this book is spectacular, uh, Mitch. It, and I know you've been working through social media on documenting the history of the Denver DA's office. I'm a small part of it, and back to my egomania, of course. When I picked it up, is my name in it? And thank you for putting it in there, because I was never Denver DA, although I tried to be memorably in 1996. You were, and there are so many people have come and gone through that office. Thank you for mentioning me, but I have to tell you that some of these chapters, when 1980 forward and the big cases, of course, I have my perspective on it, and, and it's just a page turner. So thanks for taking up so much of my time.
3: Well, you know, I, I appreciate you paying attention to it and obviously talking about it, I think that it, you know, it it, it hasn't gotten real wide exposure, but uh, the people that have purchased it on Amazon, and that's where you can go to get it, it's $20, uh, they deliver it, you know, you know how Amazon is, you can get reading it almost right away, and you know, I, it, I'm really proud of it, and I know Norm's proud of it, and I was glad that Norm was, a, was able to step in and help me, because... It was an awful lot of materials, and it it took a lot of kind of consolidating it down. We footnote everything. Uh, Norm had always had an interest in the history of the DA's office. So when I reached out to him, and your listeners probably don't know who Norm Brisson is, but Norm Brisson worked in the DA's office. He came and went. He was, you know, everything from a victim advocate to the administrative head of the office. Uh, incredibly thoughtful guy, very smart, ended his career after he worked for Ritter in the governor's office. He was his chief of staff. He went up and ran the Lakewood Municipal Court and worked up there for the rest of his career. He's taking care of grandkids now and his wife and just a great guy, wonderful guy. And, um, you know, our goal was to get this book out and and document and kind of, you know, remember the history of these different people. And, you know, I think it was important to do that. It never really was about making a lot of money or anything like that. We knew we weren't going to make any, you know, top 10 lists or anything like that, because it is about Denver. But um, to be able to put people like you, Bill Ritter, you know, Otto Moore, I mean, it's important that, Denver understand the people that worked in that office that sought justice for the citizens of Denver. And all the officers that were killed in the line of duty are all mentioned in the book. I just think there's a lot of things in that book that mean a lot to me and be able to get the book out. And it took a lot longer than I thought it would, but uh, it was important to take the time to get it done well, and and I think it is good, and I think that people will enjoy it if they get it.
1: And it's so well written, and oh my gosh, for you to put me in a sentence with Bill Ritter and the great O. Otto Moore, and I read that part too. And part of what I try to do on this podcast, and I'm up to episode one, two, seven, is to have an oral history, and I can see you went to the Denver Public Library and reviewed those tapes of O. Otto Moore and how he fought the Klan. And I've played those on my podcast and tried to document it. And I've had, uh, you know, Johnny Barber, who has the Koufax Museum, and he was talking about Bob Dylan and uh, the controversy about him stealing the records from Walt Conley. And you don't shy away from that. There's a great picture of Bob Dylan uh, on page 204, 205. And Tell everybody the Dylan story, and I'm glad that made the cut. And the thing about your book, too, you don't pull punches. Classic Mitch Morrissey style, and Norm Brisson is great, too. I don't know who was responsible for the final content, but you are opinionated in this book. And some people would say, well, maybe Bob Dylan stole this or that. But in the book, it's pretty clear that he did it. He confessed to it. He can say whatever now, but it happened, and it wasn't a great thing. And and then other parts of the book, you take a strong stand, like normally not prosecuting the killers of Allenberg, but we get to it. But that's why I love your book, and people should get it on Amazon, because this is a guy, Mitch Morrissey, who served from 2005 to 2017 as the elected Denver DA, the chief law enforcement officer. And before that, he'd worked for well more than a decade with me and others fighting crime. He's one of the best in the world. And for you to write a book like this, I think everybody should get it for Hanukkah and Christmas. And if you order it right now, you'll get it in time. Amazon's the best way to do it, Mitch?
3: Yeah, Amazon. You just type in, go to Amazon Books, type in Denver District Attorney, and it'll come up. And uh, it's got a gray cover with we found a copy of the old D.A. badge. You'll see that it's gold. And then it's got a picture of everybody that was elected as a prosecutor that covered Denver. You know, obviously back in we've got two or three guys that were there before um, before Colorado was the state, but they were elected. It was old Arapahoe County and you know, they served. And so we wanted to make sure they were included in the book. And so we go all the way back uh, to Markham, who was the first elected prosecutor in Denver, and uh, all the way to the current district attorney.
1: And don't you feel by documenting history, there are lessons there that can be applied to modern times? For example, Phil Van well, Science, you know, 100 years ago, and what. I love about our entangled relationship. Wasn't I your boss for a minute or two in, in the DA's oh, office?
3: Oh, no. Much longer than that. Oh, you know, right. I came into courtroom 13, uh, and uh, Judge Corelli was in there, and you and Stan Garnett, who became the Boulder DA, you were assigned there. When I came in, uh, I was— uh, You know, I was the newest deputy that you had. You were kind of focused on another big case that's in the book at the time, and it wasn't in courtroom 13, and you're spending a lot of time on the Rodriguez case. And so, uh, you know, it was my job to make sure courtroom 13 was running well. And, uh, you know, Stan was, I think, kind of looking at private practice at the time, went to work with Steve Farber. And Brownstein, and and so you know it was an interesting time for me. I didn't get to watch you guys in trial much, but uh, you know I was trying to hold down the fort in courtroom 13. So yeah, we we overlapped. You were my chief, um, and you know like I say, you were working on one of the most important cases I think in the history of the Denver DA's office, and I'm sure you're honored to have had that responsibility norm gave you that you got to try it with mike little i mean you talk about a character Uh, mike little i just you know my side would start to ache when mike would get going he was so funny and you know that's the other thing about this book there's a lot of characters and you know when i think about them and they're gone um you know norm and mike and folks like that i was just lucky to in my career, be able to, you know, interact with them, interact with you. I mean, it meant a lot to me. I wanted to put some of that in this book. And, you know, Norm was a big help in trying and trying to get that message through.
1: Man, you're getting to me again, because talk about luck. There I am, a young chief deputy normally calls me in because your buddy Mike Kane took a job in Pennsylvania. He had prosecuted the Rodriguez brothers. Frank was stuck in the Supreme Court on who's going to represent him. Mike uh, Little and Mike kane tried to get the death penalty on Chris Rodriguez. The late Ken Gordon defended, and there was a verdict not of death. And then I was asked to do it, and I consulted my conscience and would love to talk about the death penalty. It's gone now, but I decided I would do it after I read the file and considered that Frank Rodriguez was, you know, just out of prison. He'd been convicted so many times before. He was a habitual criminal, had raped women before. And yes, he only had one victim, but what he did to Lorraine Martelli was so horrific. And, you know, she went to North High with my Uncle Mel, who is a uh-huh. memory in my family, and... Anyway, I got that assignment and it changed me. And I looked at your book, and there's a picture of Pat Pollock who got gunned down December 12, 1986. And it was during the Rodriguez trial. I remember yeah. that because, and it was right around this time of the year. And while we were waiting and making arguments, the city and county building would start. Erupting in Christmas carols. And here we are doing a death penalty case. And the jury came back and said, Death to you, Frank Rodriguez. 12 people. And I'm the guy, I did bang my fist on my big blue statute book because I couldn't believe it. Uh, everybody yeah. said you couldn't get a death penalty in liberal Denver, but we did. And it, it looks like it'll be the last one. Frank died, last appeal pending before the 10th Circuit. He died of hepatitis C on death row. So, boy, thanks for mentioning that. That was sure memorable. But but, but just think about, I I had the luxury of leaving my courtroom behind to Stan Garnett and Mitch Morrissey. I'd say you guys were more than capable. How lucky. What what great line of attorneys was going through that office.
3: Well, and that, you know, you got to... And if you look at the history, I mean, it started before Norm. You started with Dale Tooley. Mm-hmm. I mean, there was there it was a beginning of people of incredible talent that worked in that office. And you know, Craig, we weren't getting rich. Uh, we were we were government lawyers. We were prosecutors. It, and you talked about the ego and. You know, it's about being in that courtroom every day for me. That's all I ever wanted to do. I never wanted to be the elected DA. All I ever wanted to be was a trial lawyer. And getting exposed to you, to Mike Little, to Mike Kane, uh, to David Connor, who was my chief before he went to the U.S. Attorney's Office. I mean, if you wanted to be a trial lawyer, the best trial lawyers, certainly in the state of Colorado, probably in the United States were in that office. And I was so lucky to be part of that. My dad told me, you know, old trial lawyer himself, go down there, get a job with early. He'll teach you how to try a case and you'll get exposed to some of the best lawyers that I've ever seen. And I took his advice, went down there and started as an intern like you did, was lucky enough to work with Brooke Winicky, who was an incredible incredible talent she was our appellate chief and you know it it just was contagious and I'll never forget Norm said well what do you think you'd be doing in five years Mitch And I said I'll be working with my dad Um, and I never got a chance to do that Craig and my dad has since passed away but um, I never was I never wanted to leave the DA's office once I started and uh, that was kind of the thing about running was that I knew there were term limits. I knew they had taken out Bill Ritter. And so I actually, for the first time in my career, had an update And uh, we extended that for four years. It was went from 8 to 12. But, um, you know, I miss it every day. And I know you miss it. And uh, you do this, and you do a lot of things, and it's incredible. But um, if you ever did that job and you had a passion for it, uh, no matter what you're doing, you're never gonna forget those days. You're never gonna forget those cases. You know the Frank Rodriguez thing. I know you think about it. Uh, let me tell you one thing though: when everybody was gone, when the final person involved, you know Chris was dead, and you could tell me the other guy's name once David, he was David dead. David Martinez. So we had the we had what was left. And it was the personal belongings of the victim, and uh, Bob Fuller, who was one of my great investigators, brought it to me. And he said, "Mitch, you know, what do you think about this?" And there was a there was a little uh, um, book that you keep uh, addresses, and it was small things. I said, "Give them to me. I'm got to make some phone calls." And I got a hold of a nephew, and he said, "You know, you really need to talk to." her sister. She's the one that's left. And I said, listen, I called her and I said, you know, you've never met me. I'm Mitch Morrissey. I'm the Denver district attorney. And I have these personal items that belong to your sister. And I want to know what you want me to do with them because, uh, you know, you've been through this. It took decades. It was years, but now, you know, everyone's gone. This is what I have. Uh, what would you like me to do with them? And she said, well, if you could deliver them to my house, i really appreciate it. And uh, we were able to do that. So kind of got the final chapter, Craig. Um, but oh, my I gosh,
1: thought, that was uh, probably Antoinette Massimino. Uh, yeah. And, beloved, she, and she had worked in the Denver District uh, Court clerk's office. And I loved that woman. And, you know, a lot of cases you get tight with people, but that – If you want a case that never ends, do a death penalty case, you know? Yeah. So, oh, my gosh, you're giving me chills again, Mitch. Thanks for doing that. Well, it
3: was one of those things, Craig, where I figured this is my job, you know, and I could have had, you know, Bob go over and ring the doorbell or but I, I was the elected DA and that was my job. I understood what it took for that family and for you and Mike and for everybody that worked on it, I watched, I saw it. I did a death penalty case myself years later. I understood what it was to put in 12, 14 hours a day, every single day, working on a case like that. And she deserved that. Her family deserved that. I felt it was my responsibility to reach out to her personally and say, I have this. And she might've just said, I'll just throw it away or something. You know, I didn't know what she was going to say, but uh, she, she took my call. She explained what I I explained, why I was calling her and were able to get those things back to her.
1: Oh my gosh. That case brings back so many memories because I'm a Southeast Denver guy and I had to go to North Denver, learn about that. I probably visited the same area that you just went to. And Mike Little made the whole job fun. He had this sense of humor. He could do impressions. Plus, he was smart, and he knew the law. And that guy loved talking to juries, and juries loved him. And there was, you know, a a Catholic priest harassing us over seeking the death penalty, and I just left all that to Mike, you know? And he had a retort for that guy who was a constant presence in the courtroom. And I love well, that guy. Yeah. I mean, holy cow, me tell what a you, man.
3: Let me tell you a quick story on that. I had a great aunt and she went to church every single day. She was the first Catholic ever hired in Denver Public Schools. And she worked as a gym teacher, mostly up in, you know, City Park, elementary schools, all of that. And she's watching that trial. And she was so incensed that that priest was spending his time there instead of working in a school or having some impact on the community. And, and she just, she was one of those folks that she never had any kids. She didn't get married till she was, you know, she was committed to the kids that went to school in Denver. And it just incensed her as a Catholic. That this guy was not doing something that she thought needed to be done. She's the shortage of priests. Why is this guy doing this? You know, and but- Lorraine
1: was a devout Catholic. She'd never married. She had thought about becoming a nun. She was working at the House of Glass. She was yeah. leaving early to take care of her aged and for mother. It happened November 14, nineteen eighty-four. We got it to trial two years later. She was yeah. a blessed memory, wonderful woman, and Catholic. She was praying her rosary beads as Frank Rodriguez stabbed her to death 28 times, stuffed her in the trunk of her own Monte Carlo, went and partied with the knife. Anyway, and then he had also shot George Stapleton. I had that sure. bonus punch. Remember that? He had almost killed another guy in a robbery. He was a horrible person, and yet I wrestled with it. How do you feel about You know, before we get to the death penalty, I just want to say that uh, I want you to talk more about your family, because it's one of the most accomplished in Denver history. And I'm third generation Denver lawyer. So are you. It's another way we are linked. What part of town Mm -hmm. did you grow up in?
3: I grew up in southwest Denver. My father grew up in Park Hill. My grandfather grew up in North Denver. His house is still up there. His father built it. Um, and he actually never lost his connections to North Denver. When he was he was involved in politics. He and Fred Dickerson, who at the time was the top criminal defense attorney in the entire state, um, he I'll never forget. Norm Early came to Mullen High School when I was there. I was a, either a junior or a senior, and I was in the class. And he he's talking about being a trial lawyer, being a prosecutor, and I raised my hand. I asked him, who do you think is the best defense attorney in Colorado? And he said, Fred Dickerson. That was my grandfather's partner. Mm -hmm. But my grandfather's name was Tom Morrissey. He was the longest serving U.S. attorney in Colorado. The reason being he got appointed by Franklin Roosevelt. He served almost the entire time Roosevelt was president. Then Harry Truman Re-upped him as U.S. attorney for one term of, of Truman's, his first term. And then he, he, he decided he was going to run for mayor. And so he ran for Denver mayor. Uh, he ran against Stapleton, who had been the longtime serving mayor. And he ran against Quick Newton, who was a young Republican. Um, they split the Democratic vote and Newton got elected. And my father always said, you know, it's probably the best thing that ever happened at Denver because the two old guys got it put out to pasture, um, and Newton took over. But um that was kind of the end of his political career, but he always was in the background. And I met a lot of people that over the years that said, you know, it was your grandfather that told me I was gonna run for this or I was gonna run for that. And basically his stronghold politically was up north with Mike Pomponio, it was district X. Um, and you know, it was a it was a different type of setting up there with Globeville, Swansea, you know, meat packing people, all of the things that went up there before those neighborhoods were divided by I-70 and I-25. And you know, I remember going to going to North Denver and being invited up there with my family to have these Italian women just cooking incredible food uh, in those houses up there in North Denver. And so, yeah, I mean, my grandfather ended up living in Park Hill. That's where my dad was raised. My dad served in the legislature and was a trial lawyer his entire career. He was never a prosecutor like my grandfather or myself, but he was the one that really gave me you know, the incentive to be a trial lawyer. I remember going and watching him in courtroom 10 when I was about, I don't know, seven years old. And I was like, this is what I want to do. And that's what I was committed to doing. And then again, he gave me that great advice to go talk to Norm and see if I could get on at the DA's office. He says, that's where you'll learn how to try a case and get to work with people that know how to do that. And Boy, did you.
1: Boy, did you. I mean, you were a trial animal. You were great at trial. I mean, people know you as the elected DA, but I remember you just doing justice, which is the bottom line. You knew how to try a case. You were fantastic at it. But I'm thinking back 100 years ago, and I want to go back to your grandfather, and you do such a good job in the book. Just exactly 100 years ago, this guy, James Galen Locke, or John Galen Locke, comes to Colorado to start the Klan, and darned if he right. didn't do it, and pretty soon Denver's in its grip, and then Colorado, and you have beautiful chapter, and one guy who stood up against it was Phil Van Syce. I'm sure. thinking about my grandpa, Harry, at the Sims building, trying to make a living, How's he going to go to the city or to the courthouse when Clarence Morley is the chief judge and yep. he's bought and paid for by the Klan?
3: Well, and Craig, the most dangerous thing they did with the criminal justice system, you know, they had, they clearly had Klan member judges because we elected our judges then. We had some, you know, we had people that served on the higher courts that were clans members, uh, became the governor. Uh, and so... Yeah, Clarence Klan Morley had, goes
1: from Denver District Court Chief Judge to Governor of Colorado, 19, right. 1922.
3: Right. And so, but they took over the, the jury system. Mm-hmm. And so when there was going to be a case uh, where a Jewish person got gunned down by somebody in front of their family, his brother got shot as well. Guess who they called in to be jurors? And some of the most horrendous misjustices in the history of Colorado happened in that courthouse, the old West Side Courthouse. Yes. Because they controlled the jury system. And if that ever if anything like that ever happens again in our community or in our country, it was incredible that the judge, the judge would get down and shake hands with the murderer after the Klan jury would walk them. It was, you know, to, to research that era and to talk about that. And, you know, Phil Van Sy's granddaughter is still around. And, and I, and I've been lucky enough to talk to her about him, about his family, about the kind of incredible hero he was with courage that You know, I don't know if there were any other DAs that really had that kind of courage. Uh, The man that followed him, you know, he was in there defending some of these Klansmen. And, you know, they always thought he was part of the Klan. But he had people like Judge Moore who would go up to Golden when the Klan was up there burning crosses and having their big meetings. And he'd be down writing down their license plates and that kind of thing. There was a lot of courageous people that were in the Denver DA's office led by Van Syce and, you know, just fighting not only the Klan, but also fighting some of the, you know, the con men. Well, his biggest case, he wrote a book on it, was the con men that he took down in Denver that had a national ring that were ripping people off all over. And they would summer in Denver. And then when the weather went south, they would go south. And, uh, so Blonger was his name and he ran an outfit of con men and basically is the basis for the sting. If people have ever seen that movie and probably aging myself a little bit, but, uh, you know, it was based on that. You already did
1: that when you said you're trying to get Medicare now.
3: Well, that's true. And I got it. So I'm lucky, but, uh, you know and what a guy!
1: Oh, Otto Moore, guy. and then then can I say because I'm that old that I worked with o Otto Moore because Dale so Tilley brought him back and the guy was amazing. And one day he says to me, Silverman, get over here. I thought, oh my God, what did I do? I didn't even know he knew me really. And he said, if it wasn't for your grandfather Harry, I would have been number one at the Westminster School of Law. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. that's how far back you and i go And Otto he was playing tennis like oh by the way mitch is a champion tennis player now you got a new division to dominate right
3: yeah i just got to play in the 65 plus this year
1: and you're dominating
3: well i don't know about that
1: yeah you, i see you double, on facebook so. I trophy every other week way to go
3: well, no, you know, it's the way I get exercise while we were, you know, working and trying those cases and the stress and all of that. You have to have something, you have to have something that relieves that you played basketball. You know, there were different things you had to do just to, to, to kind of stay on a more even keel. I wasn't, I won't say I was always on an even keel, not only on the tennis court, but in the courtroom. But, um, you know, people say I had a temper. People say those kinds of things, and I did. I love you know, your temper
1: because in, in Lawyers League football, you put Mitch Morrissey on the line and somebody hits him, he's off. You should not have done that. He's going to block your ass, protect me at quarterback, clear the lane, catch a pass. You were a dominant Lawyers League football player. And it's all because you had that on button match you still do.
3: Yeah, you know, I'm getting old, Craig. You know, but I, I, I enjoyed it. I enjoyed, you know, being on the receiving end of those passes. And uh, you and I, I think there were a couple of times I remember I, I, I remember being in the huddle with you in one one of those games. They said, Listen, Craig, stop throwing the ball to these guys that are running the wrong direction throw the ball to me and we'll get down the field. And, you know, about three or four passes later, I was standing in the end zone because you were, you know, you're incredible. You could throw the ball. And I'm sitting there thinking, you know, this guy is big. He should be on the line. What am I doing on the line? But we didn't have anybody could throw the ball like you. And Henry Cooper and people that, you know, got to catch those passes. I mean, it was it was great. It was fun. And occasionally it would get a little, uh but you know there were referees out there and i think i only got kicked out of one game so you know i i tried to keep it under control that proves uh, that
1: i i'm i'm coachable and i'm glad you coached me that way i can take directions from somebody i respect and this is such a fun interview we can talk all day long about these things but i just uh I just want to bring up another lead topic to show you're far from retired because you are solving cases left and right now. We're talking history, but Mitch Morrissey the guy on the forefront of modern times with DNA. Nobody knows it better than Mitch Morrissey. He's been featured on 60 Minutes. He has a company called United Data Connect, and you are solving cold cases, bringing justice to people, the worst kind of murders. And that's another reason I'm so honored to have you on. And I mean, brag on that a little bit. I bet your grandpa and all those guys would be so proud of you.
3: Well, you know, it was interesting. My dad, when I got term limited, he's like, well, are these big firms calling you Mitch? I was like, dad, I have a company. And he's like, what? You know, and he, he eventually got dementia, and I don't know how far along he was then when I talked to him. And he, we have a company, what do you do? And I said, well, we solve. We solve cold cases. We use, at that time, a familial search software, which we solved the number of cases across the country with that, the states that would use our software. But we also started to do genetic genealogy shortly after the Golden State Killer uh, was captured with that new technique. I have an incredible um, genealogist. I think she's the best in the country. I can't mention her name because she doesn't want any attention drawn to her. She and her husband, you know, they don't have a lot of experience in the criminal justice system, and they think that, you know, somebody may come after them, that kind of thing. But she's incredible, Craig. And she give, we give law enforcement leads on those cases that a whole lot of people have given up on. And, uh, you know, to meet the sister of the woman that was killed in Cherry Hills Village, Sylvia Quayle, she got killed in the early 80s, brutally raped, um, shot first, raped, then stabbed to death in her living room in Cherry Hills Village to get to meet her sister and talk to her. And, You know, the last person left in her family, her parents were gone. She said, you you won't believe what this did to my dad. Uh, He found his daughter in that condition. And you know what those crime scenes look like, Craig, because we used to be on call. We used to walk in and see those things. And she said it changed his life. He was never the same. And he used to have coffee with her every morning. And so to be part of bringing the individual that ended her life, even though it was almost 40 years later, to justice, it meant a lot to me. I know it meant a lot to my genealogist. And it's just important work that needs to be done. And we have solved cases up in the mountains. Uh, Most recently, your listeners probably read about the two hitchhikers, five hours apart, going out of Breckenridge. One ended up shot to death up on the pass on the way to Fair Play. The other one was found six months later in a creek near Fair Play. And the man that killed them, we were able to identify him, give the, the people that were working that case for years the lead with a name. And that night, he got stuck on the pass Between, He was going over into Leadville on another mountain pass, stuck in 20 below, would have died. He SOSing airplanes that are flying over. They sent Amy Montoya's brother. And you remember Amy, the sex assault detective, uh, sent her up and sent him up and he saved the guy's life. He had a big gash on his forehead. And that was the blood that we got off the glove. We're able to identify him. Wow.
4: And these
1: convictions take. There's another thing that kind of binds us together, sort of unfairly, because I am far from the DNA genius you are. But I did the first Colorado case, flowed out of Denver, the Capitol Hill rapist. We had convicted him of six. Different sex assaults, and Judge Huffnagel would not let us try a seventh because DNA was too new, and we got the info too late. So then we, on a change of venue, went to Pitkin County, and David Olivas and I presented the first case on uh, DNA in Colorado, and yep. and uh, and then you mastered it. But it, it's it's amazing that memory because uh, it it. it just the technology and what it means for law enforcement it's epic
3: right it is and it is evolved the first case i did was 89 Um, the fishback case which was the first time in colorado that the supreme court recognized dna was admissible in colorado courts to prove identification which you know is one of the hardest things to prove when it's a Somebody like Wortham, it wasn't someone that these victims knew, it was an intruder who went in, brutally raped and terrorized these women, tried to clean up the evidence. Um, You know, Wortham was a classic serial rapist, and you took him out, and that's what DNA allows us to do. 90% of the victims of the violent crimes that DNA helps us solve are women, and the 10% that are left from the 90, about 9.5 are kids. DNA is a science that helps us catch predators, mostly men, that are terrorizing the women and children in our community. And that's why I think it's so important that we utilize it, that we fund it. And there are studies that say that you cannot, there is no other investment of a law enforcement dollar that's better spent than it is on DNA because of the crimes that you solve, the homicides, the rapes. And, you know, I know that many of your listeners know, but the trauma that someone goes through when they've been sexually assaulted, it's years, it's years of, of dealing with that. The post-traumatic stress, all of those kind of things, incredible costs to the victim, to society. And that's why, You know, when I got the chance to do the first case in Denver, and uh, I kind of got stuck then, Craig. I don't know why you didn't get stuck, maybe because Olivas left, but I got stuck. I became the DNA guy for about the next 20 years, which brought me into incredible cases. Uh, But, you know, Mitch, you need to do the DNA part. And we spent 10 years just doing admissibility hearings. Uh, Because the public defenders would never appeal it. So we couldn't get a ruling from the Supreme Court on the newest technology that they're still using today. It took a long time. And finally, a judge threw DNA out in Boulder. And the Shrek case then went up to the Supreme Court. And (laughs) a judge that I did a bunch of admissibility hearings in Denver, Justice Rice, she wrote the opinion. And you know she knew it. She was well versed, and she was a great justice, and she was a fun judge, district court. I don't know if you got to try any cases in front of her, but I tried a serial rapist in front of her, and uh, yeah, she was a good judge, and she understood the science, and she wrote a great opinion. And we don't have those hearings anymore, but DNA is an incredible crime fighter. And that's why I've been just really lucky. You know, I've been able to go all over the world teaching people about DNA, Central America, uh, the Middle East, to England, to Canada, uh, just to talk about what we're doing, the cutting edge things. I got to start the cold case program in Denver, uh, started about the time I got elected, John Priest, myself, Dr. Greg LaBerge. We started looking at cold cases. We started solving those cases. And we were the exception because we started looking at old rape cases, too. And we solved, you know, at one point we had solved 80. Well, we had solved 800 cases when I left. We had prosecuted well over 100 predators when I left. Remember, you can solve a case, but it's not necessarily can you prosecute it because the victim's dead the suspects dead. When we got to Vincent Groves, who had died in prison, been convicted of three murders, when we made another five murders on him, we know he did, but we couldn't prosecute him. So we solved those cases. We talked to those families. We gave them answers. Sometimes they had suspects in their mind and, you know, exonerated those people. It's an incredible science. And, you know, the work we're doing now using the commercial databases that will work in law enforcement, building out family trees, we can reach people out to their fourth cousin if they're in that database. That fourth cousin may have information in their DNA that helps us get to the person that killed somebody as far back. Our oldest case is 1963.
1: You are doing God's work, uniteddataconnect.com, if you want to read about these success stories. And Sylvia Quayle, who got murdered on August 4th, 1981, not far from where uh, I live, and that really hit home. And my God, the work you did, and you bring up Wortham, who was a home invasion guy. He'd catch these women from behind, and we just had— Circumstantial evidence. We were convinced he did it, but then the DNA really confirmed it. A lot of people in Denver thought he might be innocent because he represented himself and he got Judge Corelli a little flustered. And then we straightened it out, normally, David Olivas and I. And I knew how to say deoxyribonucleic acid, which made me sound like I understood DNA, but I'm not good at science. My sister is. What about you? Were you good at science uh, growing up?
3: Well, Craig, I always say, listen, the reason lawyers are lawyers is because they don't like math and science. This is statistics, chemistry, biology, genetics. You know, that was not something that I was strong at. That was not something that I, in fact, I would avoid those kind of classes when I was in college. There were certain, you know, things I had to take. Um, Up at CU when I was an undergrad, but you know I just did not take those kind of classes. I studied political science. I did things that I could do well enough that I could get into law school. So the last thing in the world I needed was a D in biology because that would have killed my grade point average, and it would prevent me to get where I wanted to be, and that was in a courtroom trying cases. So you know. When I first got this, I was like, boy, this is going to be tough. And then it was tough. And if it wasn't for people in the community that helped me, like Dr. LeBurge, who was an intern in the crime lab, was getting his master's in biostatistics at the university, uh, um, you know, at at Colorado at CU. And, you know, incredible help. You know, when you can sit down and talk to the people that do it, that use it, that can explain it to you, it really helps you a lot. Now, remember, I wasn't getting on the witness stand. What my job was to make sure that the people that were up there understood, you know, they were explaining it to the jury in a way the jury could understand it. I was that go-between, and so I needed to understand it especially when i was cross examining a statistical expert that was saying that the stats were no good or a you know a university professor who was on the side making money testifying against the very stuff he was using in his lab to do research but saying it couldn't be used for forensics they'd come in they'd get paid a high price and they were trying to you know be part of the team to keep dna out And you can't cross-examine people like that if you don't understand it. And I couldn't understand it if I didn't read hundreds, if not thousands, of peer-reviewed papers, teaching myself, you know, going up to the university hospital library and pulling those journals, making copies of it, and, you know, building exhibit books to give to the judges to say, Judge, read these papers, read these decisions that say DNA is good. And, you know, I, I learned that, and I, and I did all those things, but I can't tell you, Dr. Seltzer up at the hospital was using it, the first technique I put in, he was using it to identify birth defects that children would have. And I said, can I come up to your lab? Can you show me how this works? He goes, absolutely. And he showed me the gels and he showed me all the things they were doing. And that's how I learned things. And so, you know, if it wasn't for those people that were willing to help me, I spent a lot of time in the Denver Crime Lab with Greg LaBerge, Ted Duvallis, uh, people that, that, you know, Jeannie Kilmer, and, and they had the patience to make sure I understood those things and understood them correctly. I remember one of the admissibility briefs that I wrote about PCR, and I took it to them, and I said, read this, because I, I need to make sure that I have this right, and they said, well, Mitch, you, you actually have this confused, and a light bulb went off, and it was like, whoa, okay, now I finally understand this. There was one of the and, and so what it did was it, it helped me be better in court. It helped me educate the judges and eventually the juries. And then it also helped me be able to go around the country, be able to go around the world explaining it. Most recently been part of a we're training uh, prosecutors and judges in Central America. You know, they're starting to get DNA in their systems. They, uh, some of them have. State of the art crime labs now, but it's not being utilized the way it should be utilized. We went to Costa Rica. We, you know, we had a whole group—Supreme Court justices, prosecutors—and we said the one thing they need to do is go to the lab. They have a great lab here. Let's go there. And so we went. We took them on a tour of their own lab. And at one point now, there's Supreme Court justices talking to the person that runs. Their database, and they had a problem, and they got it fixed. And now that database is helping solve more crimes in that in that country. So, you know, I've been lucky enough to meet people, great people, around DNA to go around the world, and and talk to people and train people. And you know, it really turned out to be something that I uh, that. It was a great thing for me. I'll never forget, though, up at our conference in Estes Park, they asked me to talk about DNA. And I was incredibly nervous going in front of you and, you know, people like Mike and people that we've talked about all in the audience. And I'll never forget how nervous I was. And I'm talking about this. And I ended with this will revolutionize what we do. When it comes to a it ID, this is going to revolutionize it, and we all need to get behind it, use it, that kind of thing. And I'll never forget afterwards everybody was like, because I think they got the sense of how nervous I was. And they said, well, you maybe overplayed this DNA a little bit, Mitch, but you did a great job, you know. And, and I got that from Mike Kane, from people, and uh, I was right. It has revolutionized the criminal justice system getting to the right guy and making sure that you don't convict the wrong guy. That's what it's about. And that's why it's so important that it's in our courtrooms and it's helping us solve uh, incredibly horrible crimes. But
1: can it be a double-edged sword too? Because aren't juries always looking for DNA now and can't occasionally offer false clues? You just brought up Mike Kane again. And it is that season... Jean Benet killed in 96. I just heard her father, John Ramsey, on with Megyn Kelly on a podcast 26 years after the crime, and he said the key to solving this is DNA. He wants some lab, not yours, but some other lab to find the killer, and he says it's out there by way of background. Mitch was one of the people selected to work on this case. Mike Kane was brought back to Colorado to do it, um, and uh, I'm forget, Bruce, right? It was uh, Bruce Levin. Bruce Levin was the third guy, but you still were under the supervision of Alex Hunter. I mean, what a time it was! Just react to that, Mitch. Is DNA going to solve Sean or is it going to get in the way?
3: Well, it's there. You can't ignore it. I mean it's in a you know we're talking about foreign DNA male not sperm but in mixed with her blood in her panties. Um, she was bleeding from uh, uh, well I don't know if you want to talk about no, this I kind No yeah, I do. Yeah know there
1: was an allegation that a stick was uh, putting her yeah. private part right?
3: Yeah it was a it was a broken Paintbrush. From it was part Pat, of patsy's,
1: patsy's art,
3: right? So which have, was down in the he, basement where yes. she was found. There was an easel. There was all of her painting paints, and she had a little tray. And in that tray was part of a broken paintbrush. And the other part of the paintbrush was used to penetrate the little girl and uh, caused some bleeding. And in her panties, there were two small stains. And in those stains was not only her DNA, but also the DNA of of some male, unknown male. How it got there, I don't know. Had it been there, I don't know. So one thing about DNA, you can't age it. You don't know how it got there. You just know it's there. And you look at the data that's there. And I'll never forget that case because Bill Ritter asked me to go up to Boulder and help Mike Kane, And I told him no. I said, you know, Bill, I just got off this death penalty case where another little girl was murdered and brutally raped. And I haven't seen my kids that are the same age of both these little girls for two years, because when I go home, they're asleep. And when I get up, they're still asleep. And I go to work and I haven't seen them. And I can't do this again. I can't do this to my wife and to my kids. And he said, okay. I understand. But he goes, you're the only one, Mitch, that can help Mike out. You're the only one in the state that knows this DNA. And I said, Bill, there's not DNA. It's not going to matter in that case. And he said, well, okay. I respect what you say. And he about three days later, my doorbell goes off and there's Mike Kane. And Mike Kane is a dear friend of mine. He was my first chief deputy in county court. He always treated me with, you know, incredible respect. And he said, Mitch, I need you. And I went in, we sat down at my dining room table. My wife was gone. I was watching the kids. I had planted them in front of the TV so I could talk to Mike. And I said, Mike, right there is the reason I told Bill, no, this little girl and this little boy, and, uh, you know, I just can't do this to them again. And he goes, Mike, he goes, Mitch, there's no one else. I got to have you got to help me. And so uh, I said I would do it. And I did it. And, you know, I went up to CBI and uh, the first day I was on the case, sat down with Kathy Dressel. And you remember Kathy, when she worked in the Denver crime lab, she went up to CBI and I'll never forget. She says, well, Mitch, what about that other stain? And I said, what other stain, Kathy? And she said, Well, there's another stain in the panties that they told me not to test. And I said, Well, how big's the stain? And she said, Well, it's, you know, she said, About the size of a half dime. I said, Is it big enough to cut it in half and save half for the defense? And she said, Yeah. I looked at Bruce Levin, who I had just met. I said, Test it. And it had not a full male profile but enough to put in CODIS. And it has been running in CODIS ever since that profile was developed. And so when you think about it, we had DNA from, I don't know, hundreds and hundreds of suspects. But we also had that DNA running in a database with millions of people in it, 18 million people in it to date, about. So it's been compared to, against an awful lot of people and an awful lot of criminals. And there's never been a hit. It's never matched anybody. And so I spent the next 18 months in front of the grand jury trying, but every day, almost every minute trying to figure out how did this DNA get here? Who left this DNA here? Is this the DNA of the killer? Uh, And, you know, I walked away from that when the grand jury was done and hadn't answered that question. And that question still hasn't been answered today. And that's been over 25 years ago. So, yeah, it's the season and all the people that make money off of that little girl's death. And, you know, I used to have a slide that was John Benet, Inc., because the inquirer, You know, you name it, the books, all the people that cashed in on that thing. But it, to me, was a horrible tragedy to see a little girl treated like that, blow to the head, could have been saved had she been taken to an emergency room, probably laid unconscious to the point where she was dying from the closed head injury. And then those horrible things happened to her in that basement. You know, that to me, the tragedy was we didn't answer the question. And, you know, I'd love to get another shot at it, Craig, um, with the new techniques and new technologies. But, you know, and I know the Ramsey family's crying for that. But there are certain things about each DNA technology I've ever been involved with. It has its limitations. And one of the limitations is if it's a mixed sample and that mixture is about half 50-50, 50-50, you can do it, and that sample is about 50-50, so sequencing it is difficult, figuring out who the sequence, who the type belongs to when it's 50-50, uh, it's just tough, so it's another one of those hurdles that this this particular technique may not be able to get them over, but um, someday there'll be one. I'm convinced that that DNA Will be identified someday i may not be here but it will be identified someday because the people up there are committed to working the case they're committed to re- to keeping enough dna that when the technique does come that will help them that they'll be able to have it there and utilize it that's one of the sad things we see in the work we do we we reach out for instance to inglewood and say hey do you still have the dna on this woman that was murdered, teenage girl. And they said, no, we used it all up. We gave a shot and it didn't work and it's gone. And now we have a technique that could help solve that case, but the DNA is gone. So they have a lot of things to deal with there, up there in the Boulder uh, Police Department. And they've got some good minds, some good people working on it. They get criticized all the time. I've talked to them about the limitations of what we do. I've been on calls where they're talking to the people that do the state-of-the-art work when it comes to getting DNA out of limited samples. I know what they're doing up there. I know what they're thinking about up there. And they're, they're thinking about what's best for that case and solving that case someday, potentially. And you know, to get criticized uh, at every turn, I don't know. You know. They deal with it. But, um, you know, I think that the people that listen to this podcast need to understand that they are trying to do what they can to get to the answers there.
1: That's amazing. And I can send you the Megyn Kelly interview if you're interested, because John Ramsey said something a little startling. He said that uh, she was strangled and then struck in the head. But it was always my understanding, and you just uh, stated it the same way, that she was hit in the head, that maybe her breathing got shallow enough that somebody thought she was dead. Right. And then she was actually killed by strangulation with the twisting of that garotte that was made out of uh, equipment from that same art set. Am I right?
3: That's correct. So, you know, when someone suffers a close head injury, what starts to happen? Their brain starts to swell. It's just like when you, you know, you slam your thumb with a hammer, your thumb starts to swell. Well, when you suffer the kind of head injury that this girl suffered and her skull was cracked from front to back and there was a chunk of bone that was broken out from the crack in her head, your brain has nowhere to go. So what does it do? It swells, but it starts to swell down your spinal cord, and eventually it cuts off those things that allow your heart to beat and your um, and you to breathe. But your your brain is dying, and that can be measured, and that can be documented. And it was in this case, it was very clear that the blow to the head happened anywhere from an hour and a half to five hours before she was strangled to death. And we had that documented by an incredible expert who had been dealing with trauma to children her entire career. And she was working at the Children's Hospital in Philadelphia. And I got to meet her and I got to talk to her about it. And it was so clear to me that she suffered that head injury. And it medically, it was all documented. I mean, there's no question. And I don't know what John Ramsey said. I've met John Ramsey um, along with his lawyer i understand they sue people that talk about this case but he's just flat out wrong and is ignoring the facts and those were facts that were di- disclosed in the autopsy it was the you know the mechanism of death that was occurring in that little girl was dying from the closed head injury before she got before she got strangled
2: there's no, a real think- danger when the police get tunnel vision they're really I mean every defense attorney who's ever represented a murder defendant argues they had tunnel vision on my guy. My guy didn't do yep. it they did, they had yep. tunnel vision on him, but in some cases, it really is true, and it can result in the wrong person being arrested and put on trial, definitely oh, yeah, no. not in your case, but you were heading down that lane
5: oh, absolutely, and we were we weren't worried about this i mean it was it was distressing, but our attorney said, "Look, the system's broken. the police don't know what they're doing." uh i we cannot promise you you won't be charged with murder we'll promise you one thing with 100% money back guarantee we will destroy him in court so don't worry about that mm. but it's not going to be fun but do not worry about being convicted we'll we'll kill him because we we knew what the evidence was and what they're trying to to do we had one one uh experienced district attorney tell us look i have never ever seen police try to explain away unidentified male DNA in a sexual assault case. Never. That's the key piece of evidence. And yet that's what the Boulder police tried to do is that was a real problem for them? That we had this unidentified male DNA.
2: Yes. That's a a massive problem. And it's the reason you've never been charged. And it's the reason Mary Lisa says it wasn't you guys. Um, On the subject of DNA, I read that the coroner did not examine the body until seven hours after she was discovered and that the the coroner only spent ten minutes at the crime scene, that's a crazy amount of time. That's I mean, seven hours is a long delay. And I wonder, John, whether they have you ever been told whether they were able to determine the time of death?
5: I've never been told. No. I don't know. Do you have any uh, I reason believe... to believe
2: there's any chance she was alive in the morning, you know, before like, I, I didn't go there, well, but like when the first cop got there, you know, is there any chance she was alive?
5: I don't think so. Uh, she was strangled to death is my interpretation of what I've heard. And then struck with an object uh, that created a pretty good um, crack in her skull. It took to be totally alien. Uh, accurate Uh, so I don't think she could have possibly been alive uh, that morning Mm,
2: okay
1: now during the pandemic and otherwise a lot of people have so much affection for their pets that must come up all the time what's going to happen to Scruffy what can you tell us about that Michael Bailey
0: what you can do is create a pet trust in Colorado you put money into trust and then that money is available and earmarked to care for the dog and it can last the lifetime of the dog or 21 years whichever is shorter and then when the time frame for the trust is up you can dictate who gets whatever leftover money or I have several clients who will leave it to some sort of animal shelter or animal rescue to be able to care for other animals.
1: How cool is that? You can go to Mike Bailey's office and he has offices all over and you could meet at your home, whatever. I love the way you practice law. You've kept it going for a long time. Tell everybody how they can make you their lawyer.
0: So my phone number is 720-394-6887. And again, that's 720-394-6887. They can call me or they can go online to mobileestateplanning.com. And there's a link there where you can schedule an appointment with me.
1: Gosh, Mitch, you are so knowledgeable about Sean Benet, and I appreciate it so much. And it goes back to your heart for victims. And I think that got coached into all of us. And I was going to say, you're coachable like me. The DNA guy said, Hey, you have to change this. Well, thank you. You know, that's part of being a good professional is to learn and grow. But I think when we hear about home invasion crimes, that really is a special species. And you've articulated why DNA is so valuable in these most nightmarish of situations. And we got trained by Norm Early and Dale Tooley, and their commitment to victims was instilled in us. And that's why When Elon Musk and other people insinuated that Paul Pelosi was involved in this or that, it was just so offensive to me. And they had the preliminary hearing this week. An 82-year-old guy gets woke up in the middle of the night by a crazy man with a hammer who broke into his home and he tries to talk his way out of it. And then he gets hit in the head and people are going to make fun of him. Didn't that just get to you as... The prosecutor you are
3: well you know craig anytime that you see an an attack on an innocent victim you know we didn't we actually weren't in the era where it didn't happen as much as it did say 20 years before where you know defense attorneys were able to bring up reputation and things like that on us on a rape victim and attack them on the witness stand. Uh, You know, and we had the rape shield statute that prevented that kind of thing happening. But, you know, you blame the victim. That's always, you know, I don't know, it sells newspapers. I don't know if it gets more people on Twitter. I mean, what is Elon Musk talking about this about at all? I mean, I just, you don't. I don't understand it. A lot of it has to do with things that, you know, I'm fortunate enough to be as old as I am and those things aren't quite as don't mean as much to me because I really don't understand a lot of them. You know, I have a Facebook page, I have you know, LinkedIn, those kinds of things, but you know, I don't go on Twitter, I don't spend time doing those things. I do put out our successes and try to, you know, put the word out of the work that we're doing, but you know, I don't have time to Waste reading what former President Trump has to say on some social media platform or Elon Musk or or any of that, you know, Uh, that's just not the way I spend my time or people that I spend my time with. And you and I were talking off the recording about how, you know, I spend an awful lot of time with my dogs Um, you know, that's the one thing that being term limited, I, I got to get this book done because I was pretty much had the free, had the time to work on it. I got to develop this company, but I spent a lot of time by myself. I spent a lot of time with my dogs and, uh, I don't really waste my time with the types of things that you're talking about. I always hate to see a victim get blamed, um, certainly a home invasion. But when you talk about DNA and what did they call were them the Washington Park rapist? Capitol
1: Hill rapist. I did Capital do Hill. Theodore Castillo, the Washington Park rapist, too. I did him in the sense that I prosecuted him, yeah.
3: I filed the case on him. I filed those cases sitting in intake, and I knew somebody like you would pick that up and run with it. He was a horrible guy too.
1: Castillo but or Wortham or which one?
3: I filed Castillo. Mm-hmm. And but think about it, Craig. And I, I know we don't have the newspapers we had when we were coming up and doing the things. The you know Rocky Mountain News is gone and all of that. But they love to give those guys names like that. I tried the Capitol Hill. I tried the, I think he was the second Cheeseman Park rapist. And then I, I tried a guy they called the Highline Canal Rapist. Oh, yeah. And to give you the impact of DNA, when was the last time you saw one of those? When was the last time you read a headline about, you know, the Washington Park rapist attacks again? You know, DNA catches them. It catches them. Nice. Maybe not the first time or the second time, but not, you know, you don't go eight years, you don't go five years, 25 victims, 10 victims, that kind of thing. DNA catches them. You know, we, we would catch these guys sometimes in two days if we had DNA and they were in the database. Um, there were some horrible things that happened while I was DA, um, you know, little children that were sexually assaulted, all those kinds of things. But, I was lucky because Denver has such a great crime lab that we were able to get, we would go from not having anything but a really bad composite to two days later knowing the guy's name, focusing the fugitive teams on catching him. Uh,
1: Thanks to Mitch Morrissey, you're the one who championed that. I don't know all the back and forth, but without you, none of this would have happened. You are a hero. And if I can just go back to Jean Benet for a second, you're not wasting your time doing anything. You're trying to solve old crimes with United Data Connect. Are you saying that if John Ramsey came to you in good faith and said, Mitch, I know you're part of the team and... By the way, Megan Kelly didn't mention it, but I have to. The grand jury voted a true bill against the Ramseys. It got reported by Charlie Brennan. And then it wasn't your decision. You probably had some input. You can address it. But it was Alex Hunter, just like Merrick Garland's going to have to make the call, even though they brought in this guy, Jack Smith. Ultimately, if Merrick Garland says, no, it's not going anywhere, Alex Hunter refused to sign the grand jury true bill. Was that a good decision on his part? or? And, and uh, again, John Ramsey, if he approached you and said, I want United Day to connect involved, would you do it? I know that's a compound question, but I can't help but go back to this poor little girl who was victimized on Christmas. If you can't care about that, what can you care about? I care. I do. I'd like to know who killed Jean Benet.
3: Sure. Well, when you, when you said, was it a good decision? I thought to myself, it was the right decision. Was it a good decision? Well, I don't know. You know, answer that question's not, not within really my bailiwick. But I was brought up and you were brought up. Not bringing cases where you don't have a reasonable likelihood of conviction. That is your standard. That's where you. That's what you live by as a prosecutor. You don't charge people where you don't have a reasonable likelihood of conviction. So, was it a good decision? Did it answer things? Did it? Although, it, I don't know, but it was the right decision because we did not have a reasonable expectation of privacy of uh, of conviction. Of the Ramses and I but there was to Alex but there Hunter was about
1: that right, but there was probable cause right when there, there was something-
3: probable cause, Craig, and how many times in your career did you sit there with an outstanding detective across the table from you, saying, "Why are you not filing this case? we've got probable cause. you have probable cause. The grand jury said we had probable cause. The one grand jury that got juror that got interviewed during that whole time said they asked him that question. Would you have convicted him? He said no, but there was probable cause. You don't file cases based on probable cause. I had a lot of people say to me, well, why don't you just file it and let the jury decide? Because that's not ethically correct to do. If you don't have a reasonable expectation of I don't know why I keep saying that Fourth Amendment, but if you don't have an expect, if you don't have a reasonable likelihood of conviction, you cannot bring the charge. And Alex Hunter, you know, he gets blamed for that. But I'll tell you, we were advising him that on that. And I'll never forget sitting down with all the elected DAs. You know, they all were part of the decision making and all of that. We laid out what we had and they described this mystery DNA in the little girl's panties mixed with her blood. We They went around the table and they were unanimous except one that we should not charge them. And the one said, well, you know, when you look at a case as close as you guys have looked at this and you've done a great job, there's always an arrow pointing the other direction. And the arrow here is this DNA and You know, I think you should go ahead and indict him and charge him. And I looked at him and I said, did you not listen to a word I said? This isn't an arrow. This is a javelin through the heart of anybody that tries this case or charges this case. And I, for one, don't try people where I don't think there is a reasonable likelihood of conviction. I learned that from Norm Early." You better saddle up one of your boys to try this thing because I'm done. I don't do this. That's my ethical obligation. And he can tell me to do it. Ritter can tell me to do it. I'm not going to do it because I will quit this job before I do something like that. You know, it was a big deal, Craig. And he did, may not have made a good decision, but he made the right decision. And that's what it meant to me. This DNA has to be answered, and until you answer it, you cannot charge anybody, no matter what people believe, no matter how many people on the internet support Ramsey, no matter what, you cannot let that impact you. You've got evidence here of a mystery male, and as long as you have that, you have reasonable doubt, and I don't believe you can ever prosecute anybody until that question is answered. I believe it will be answered someday. Uh, the one thing about Christmas is people usually know where they were on Christmas. Uh, you know, remember the guy out in the Far East that they brought back to John Colorado? Mark Carr. Yeah. And remember, his wife had a bunch of pictures of him in Alabama or something back Christmas with his kids. I mean, he was the most alibi, you know, just like all of us would be. Let's talk about that,
1: because I don't know Mary Lacey. She used to be Mary Keenan, and I really don't know her. I expect you do. But I cannot conceive of anybody extraditing somebody from the Far East with the hubbub involved without having the goods on him. Or something beyond whatever, and I, I was said I, I stated that opinion because I was doing a lot of shows, and she let me down. She, what was that all about?
3: Well, Craig, we had a DNA profile. They had an individual that they were following and tracking, and I can tell you, the analyst said, "Just get me a DNA sample. Just swab his cheek." They said, well, what if we swab his bike? And he said, no, just get a cheek sample from him, and I'll be able to tell you in 12 hours if it's him or not. And they ignored that advice.
1: Mary and Mary Lacey did, who was in charge of the Boulder DA's office. Don't?
3: She was the Boulder DA. I right. don't know who made the call, but I believe she, they ignored that. From one of the top DNA analysts, in the country. And he said, just bring that, send me a swab. I'll test it. And I'll be able to tell you if it matches that DNA. Remember, I told you it's almost a full profile. So it's certainly enough to exclude somebody that has different markers. And it clearly had different markers once they did test it. And that's why after they brought him back, got a DNA sample, they had to let him go. He didn't do it. Well, he didn't leave the DNA. If he said he did, he said he was responsible, but he didn't have his facts straight. And he didn't leave that DNA. And, you know, the pictures of him and the having, the talking and things that he did, he didn't seem to me to be a real sane person. Uh, he certainly was a dangerous person when it came to young children. Uh, But they could have left him over there where he was and never gone to the expense of bringing him back. It was an embarrassment.
1: It is an embarrassment to Colorado law enforcement. And I mean, I thought, no way can, because she'd been a chief deputy like you and me, right? Kind of come up through the system. Why would she do something so reckless? And then later, as DA, she said, hey, Mr. and Mrs. Ramsey, you are exonerated. What? And I'm thinking, John Mark Carr, who did that benefit? It benefited the Ramses because you said, oh, look, here's the real guy. And even if it turns out not to be, made you look right. So I, I still can't figure out what was going on there. Did she bond with the Ramses? Have you ever issued that kind of exoneration yourself?
3: We did in that case. Uh, the grand jury exonerated Burke Ramsey. They exonerated the little, the uh, and I can't remember his name, but he was the Santa Claus on the mall. Bill McRano's. Uh, right. And they tried to say that he, you know, had come in through this, lifted up this grate, gone in through the basement and carried this, you know, this little girl around after she'd been hit in the head and all of that. He had had open heart surgery where they had cut his rib cage open. Less than a month before this happened, he wouldn't have been able to lift 10 pounds, let alone the weight of John Benet Ramsey or that great. And the grand jury exonerated him. So there were people that were exonerated by the grand now jury.
1: Now, wait a second. I'm, I'm not a Christian, but doesn't Santa have superpowers, including super healing power? No. To get more serious, let's go to Burke, because CBS put on a great... I mean, it entertained me. It captured my attention documentary about Jean Benet. They did it in the old Fleming Law Building where I went to law school. And, uh, and then they got sued by Burke Ramsey. And you're telling me he was exonerated. Their premise was that Burke hit her in the head, either intentionally, accidentally. That inflicted the head blow that the parents tried to cover that up with the ransom note, the garage, the staging. Did you exonerate Burke of deliberate murder or of any involvement?
3: Any involvement.
1: How did you do that?
3: Well, he wouldn't. He couldn't have written a note.
1: I agree. So is stipulated.
3: He wouldn't have used the word attache. Right. I mean, he was a little boy.
1: But, but, right, but I accidentally bought my little sister a few times growing up. I swear. And she listens. It was an accident, Nancy. Nothing like that, but isn't that a possibility?
3: Well, the grand jury exonerated him, Craig. Hmm. I mean, there was no evidence that he he committed that crime. There was no evidence that, you know, and I understand this case has this mythology around it. And there's people with their theories. And, you know, I get asked that all the time. You know, what about her brother? And, and you know, I just was like, do you really think her brother wrote that? One of the, lo- the longest ransom note in the history of kidnappings. Use the word attache case instead of, I always say, listen, I dealt with a lot of criminals for 33 years. And the people that I dealt with would have written bag and spelled it wrong. You know, they right. you could have spotted them the B and the A, and they would have spelled it wrong. Mm-hmm. I mean, they, I have never seen a criminal that would use the word attache case, put the appropriate French accent on it. Uh, it just doesn't happen in the reality I lived in. And that little boy would not have been able to do that. Right. There were things about the case and the way that it happened that it just was clear to the grand jury that Burke Ramsey was not involved.
1: Well, I'm one of those people like you who would like this case solved. And what an international mystery it was. And uh, at the heart of it is this horrible crime. And you care about crime. You brought up Intake, the complaints unit. And I went through there twice, once memorably with Bill Ritter and Chuck Lepley. And you said you did it in the third floor of the police building, right? Um,
3: I did it in the third floor of the police building. I did it on the first floor of the police building. I probably spent five years of my career sitting behind a desk filing cases. There was a point in time where Ritter had so many specialized units that I did it by myself uh, because the special units did their own intake. And I sat every afternoon without anybody coming through the door because they all, you know, the the robbery, the burglary, the theft, right. the homicide, they were all done by noon. Uh, even the drug guys had to have their cases in before noon. And I would sit there and I, I'd never forget going over to Ritter and saying, Bill, I'm going nuts. You got to give me something. You know, let me come back here and you know, help review the cases here and making sure they were, you know, all typed properly or that. But I'm going nuts over there. I just sit there and no one comes in. But you answer your pager, right? I said, no. During the day, Chuck does all the pager answering. Right. You don't need me for that. And it's like, you got to get me out of there. You got to get me back in. You know, you got to get me back at least over to the office. You know, I could do right. something productive there, but I sit over there, and I'm, you know, and I'm by myself, and it's hard. And you know, I need to. And so, what he did do, and I got to give him
1: and credit. And there were no, there were no windows in that office, and huh. you'd hear the door the all the right? Yes.
3: Yeah, the old police museum. At one point, the one on the third floor, and I will never forget because I had the desk out in the lobby. The other two offices were private offices. And the detectives would just circle me. They would just line up, you know, because they're waiting. Right. You know, they're waiting for the next DA. And oftentimes I was the only DA. And, uh, you know. But what an important job.
1: Because let me just tell the listeners, because a detective works on a case. They come in and they explain it to you. They bring their file and you make the call. Are we going to charge this guy? What are we going to do? And, uh and and uh, it it's the most important decision in some guy's life, and you need to have a level of experience. They make you do a tour through district court, and then you get pretty good at it. And that blue book that I already talked about, there are a bunch of statutes you have to figure out. Well, what fits the crime? And I didn't know you spent that long in the job, but wouldn't you agree? It may have been tedious at times, but it's the most important part of being a prosecutor, really.
3: Absolutely. You're the gatekeeper. You're the person that has that moral, ethical standard that is, can we prove this beyond a reasonable doubt? And, you know, we had these guys and great detectives, and they would be you know, you got to be friends with them and they would be incredibly disappointed. I mean, I'll never forget this homicide detective. He was a great guy, ended up being the victim of a homicide himself. His wife killed him. And then uh, she killed herself after he retired. And he's sitting there laying this case out to me. And, I'm, you know, I, and we had a witness that got a confession from one of them. The guy admitted to killing this and all that. And I said, okay, I'll take the case against him. And he goes, well, what about the brother? And I said, well, you don't have anything that's admissible against the brother. The things that are admissible against this individual that I'm charging are because of these exceptions, because of hearsay exceptions, those kinds of things. That's admissible. You don't have any of that against the brother. And his jaw dropped. He's like, well, what do you mean? And I was like, we can't. We've got we don't have any evidence against him. He may have been involved in it, but you don't have enough evidence. And I can't charge him, Bill. And and, you know, and he was smart. He was a great detective. He ended up working in the crime lab. He was one of the, you know, he collected evidence, went to crime scenes. Great. And you, you may know who I'm talking about, but it's you know, he just turned pale on me. And they said, Bill, I just can't do this. And, you know, he walked out. I'm sure he was disappointed. And the brother was never charged. But uh, we didn't have the evidence against him. We didn't have a reasonable likelihood of conviction. We didn't have admissible evidence. And I made that call. And there were times where I had cases. I was like, who filed this? I know you remember that from being an intake. Right. You would even get that call every now and then. Did you file this? Yeah, I filed it. And you'd explain why you did, if you could remember it. We were looking at thousands of cases. And the tedious part of it for me was when you weren't getting the case presented to you, when you were sitting there. That was the tedious part. The rest of it wasn't, Craig, because you talk about the mental process you had to go through. What crimes? What are the elements? You had to know that stuff. And it was like... Yeah, you know, you don't have this, but you have this. I'm going to charge this. Or it's actually more serious than you think. Because of the way the guy behaved in this robbery, he simulated a weapon. We're going to charge him with aggravated robbery. Those kinds of things. That was important. That mental process that you went through. But the most important thing was that you used those ethical standards in making the decisions that you made. And you always had to have that in the back of your mind.
1: Gosh, we had the same training. And I remember preparing a, a talk. Maybe it was at Estes Park or some training dinner where I said, look, if you don't like the charges we brought, then change it. Ultimately, you are responsible. You can always add or dismiss charges because you are the prosecutor who needs to stand up and make the argument. And if you're not convinced beyond a reasonable doubt, how are you going to convince a jury? That's the thing about the Ramses. Oh, oh, the Ramseys did it. Well, which one? Yeah. And how are you going to prove this beyond a reasonable doubt? I understand completely. And these are the decisions that we make all the time. And you especially, as the top DA, it was ultimately your call. What a responsibility. I mean, how many thousands of prosecutorial decisions do you think you made? hundreds of
3: thousands sure you know no doubt about that but you know as the elected da the 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 thing that you know i had great people that worked with me there are people that worked with you you know i had long tenured people in that office you knew lamar sims i mean what an outstanding guy he was let alone prosecutor doug jackson uh chuck lepley you mentioned i mean I had incredible people working for me, Bonnie, better daddy. I mean, just people that had done it, had been there, lived through it. Um, and you know, that was, that was the best part of my job is that I had people that I could trust that I knew would do the right thing. And I knew we're training the young people to do the right thing, you know, and the best part of being the elected da was that i came from that office and i knew who was good and i knew who i could trust and i never had any doubt ever in my mind who the people were that had my back and what i had to make sure is they understood that i had their backs that when they were out there you know when they were giving up their family time They were giving up their private lives to get these cases done in the way they needed to be done, that I had their backs. And that's why, you know, I was on the regular on call, um, you know, rotation and went to those homicide scenes. You know, obviously I was on call for fatal police shootings every single day for 12 years. And, you know, those don't, thank God, don't happen that often. But when they do, they're going to be, you know, crisis scenarios. There's going to be families that are, you know, rightfully you know, upset. All of those kind of things. But, you know, I had a great staff. Um, they were incredible. And I was just lucky. I understood what Ritter built. Part of it was what Early built. Some of them even worked for Thule. Um, you know, look at Chuck Lepley. I mean, he basically was Tooley's assistant, not in name, because Otto Moore was. He was Early's assistant his entire time. For a period of time, he was Ritter's assistant. And I was lucky to convince him to not leave when Ritter left. I told him I needed him. And he said, well, give me the weekend. Let me talk to my wife. He came back and he said, I said, the one thing I tell you, Chuck, I need you. And you'll never have more fun than you're going to have working, doing this with me. And he came back in on Monday, said, I'll work for you for maybe six months to a year. And, and I have to retire. Eight years later, he walked in and said, I'm done. I've got to retire now. But I'll tell you, it was every bit as much fun as you said it was going to be because we ran this place the way it needed to be run and we did the right things and we did the tough things and you know we did them with a sense of humor we did them in a way that i think that whole culture of that da's office from when you were there from before you were there it was just the way it was and it was just a a wonderful place to work and it was certainly an honor to be the elected da for such incredible people that were so dedicated to keeping Denver safe, and to doing the right thing. And, you know, I never felt uncomfortable in front of the media because I could always explain why we did what we did and why it was important that we did it the way that we did. And they may not have liked it, and I got criticized, and during the last, what, two years of my career, there were protesters out in front of my house once a month calling me all kinds of names and writing horrible things on the sidewalk, and they did it in chalk, but, um, you know, it it was something that I signed on for. I got elected to be the DA, and I felt there was certain responsibilities that went with that. I guess having protesters out in front of your house is one of those things. Yeah, but,
1: it's, a, uh, it's a new day, and you are still involved in fighting crime, and we have our mutual love of Denver. Uh yeah. you might love it a little more because you got elected in Denver. I got rejected, but I'm still a Denver boy, just like you. And you talked about Denver's safety being the priority. You keep your hand in writing about crime for the Common Sense Institute. What's that about?
3: Well, it's a it's a nonprofit. It's a nonpartisan. Uh, and I, you know, I'm a fellow that we've been studying. The increase in crime in Colorado and the costs of it.
1: I hope, they, I hope they pay you
3: for that. They do. They nice. pay me.
1: Isn't that the Koch brothers, the Common Sense Institute?
3: No, 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 no. Well,
1: What am I thinking of? No.
3: This is local. This okay. is local, Greg. Um, you know, they're down in the tech center. It's an incredible group. If you read their studies, not just crime, but, you know, we're in the middle of something that needs to be addressed and it needs to be looked at and it needs to be studied. And that is this increasing crime in our state. And when you care about Colorado and you care about Denver and you look at what's happening, you look at, for instance, 2021 where we had more homicides than we've had since they've been keeping the records on homicides in the state of Colorado. And you hope it's an exception but really, what we started looking at was this COVID-driven, or is this something that has some other reason that is? Well, was
1: that a new homicide record for Colorado or for Denver yes. or for both?
3: For Colorado, because I, I think, think in that...
1: Denver back in the day, the eighties and whatnot, we were having over a hundred. Sadly, yeah. And then we, sadly. and then it got way down under your tenure, right?
3: There were four years under my tenure, and I don't take credit for all, but Jerry Whitman was the chief of police. There were four years where you had to go back to the 70s to find numbers that low. You had to go back a long time. We had about a four-year stretch where we had some of the lowest homicide rates Since, you know, 1972, I don't remember what the 70 year was, but I was proud of that. And then to see Denver almost hit its record in 2021, to see the state of Colorado set a new record. And we put a cost of that. What does it cost the people of Colorado to be number one in auto thefts in the country per capita? What does it cost? to see the increase in sexual assaults now that were reopened for business and COVID is no longer got people locked down. What does it cost to have that many people killed? We did a study on fentanyl. What does it cost to lose that many people to death to fentanyl? Uh, we did one just on auto theft because it's such a fun, you know, and I was supposed to be interviewed this week by, Uh, national, national cable news network that wanted to talk about Colorado and why is this that you're number one in auto thefts and things. So I'm really proud of the work that we've done at the Common Sense Institute. And you know, George Brockler, George is the other fellow. And, you know, I'm a Democrat. He's a Republican. They're trying to make sure that no one's saying that this is political and you know, during this election, there were people that said it was, and I found that to be offensive uh, because we, when I went out of my way to make sure that they understood these reports and why we were writing them. And I sat down with the individuals that said it was politically motivated. I gave up my time to go down and talk to them about any criticisms they had about it. They didn't have any until they were sitting in front of being interviewed. About you know what were they doing about crime that kind of thing? So, you know, I had conversation with them about it, and uh, I, I, you know,
1: because- I yeah, I salute you for your work on this because I know where you're coming from, and it's not just the property crime aspect of auto theft, which is horrible. God, to get your car stolen, it's awful, but then it leads to other crimes. It leads to homicides, which sure. is the the big ticket item. So. God bless Who, you for getting involved.
3: Yeah. Whose car was Frank Rodriguez driving? Lorraine Martellis. He carjacked Absolutely.
1: her, right?
3: Yeah. And they needed to get out of that alley. They needed to get somewhere else. Yes. They threw her in the trunk right. and they drove away in her car. Yes. Okay. So that's auto theft. But how many times did you see robberies where they had a car? You know, they had the stolen car out in right. front of the place, and then they went and got their real cars and left because people can identify how many cars.
1: crimes start with a, a car break in to steal a gun. And then the gun is used or a, a burglary, right. right? You and I know these stories, but the way that got a little politicized, Mitch is that some people took your report and said, this is uh, all the wiser's fault. When it's my experience that now in Denver talked Beth McCann and uh, the, you know, it's, it's the local DA that has the most to do with crime. And then the allegation that uh, motor vehicle theft was being treated too leniently, and I think it is. But when you and I grew up, it was called joyriding. It was a misdemeanor. Am I right?
3: It, well, there was a misdemeanor, Craig. But remember the felonies? Class four, class three felony. You know what those felonies are today? Class six, class five, mm-hmm. you can't tell me that the legislature didn't make a choice right. to decriminalize, at least in degree, auto theft. Right.
1: No, I and agree with I, that. I, I, but that's, I, that, that's the legislature. That's not the AG, though.
3: Right. No, no, it's not the AG. Right. The only you know, but you got to take. The one thing about the AG and we had great AGs. You know, John Suthers was a great attorney general. I, I partnered with John Suthers when the federal government wouldn't give me money to look at people that had gotten convicted of rape and murder out of Denver to see if we could exonerate innocent people. I put in for that grant. They wouldn't give it to me. I put in for it the next year. They wouldn't give it to me. And they told me I wasn't a state agency. I was the Denver DA. I was like, what are you talking about? I am the elected state prosecutor for Denver. Wouldn't give me the grant. So I called John Suthers up. I said, Listen, John, we can get a million dollars. We can look at everybody in the state penitentiary convicted of murder and rape and see if we can exonerate anybody that's doing time innocent they're innocent and they didn't do it. And John said, Send me the grant, Mitch. I sent him what we wrote up. We got the grant. And actually, Michael Doherty came out at one point to run it, From and he's now the Boulder D.A. Right. And we looked at every single individual in the penitentiary that was there for murder, there for rape. We found one down in Grand Junction. We got him out of prison. He served 18 years for a murder that he was not involved in. And we found the real killer who had killed a woman up in Fort Collins. And we used his, his DNA, matched DNA that had never been tested until we ran that program. John Southers was a great DA, I mean, attorney general. I don't care what party people come from, Craig. What I care about is do they do their job, do they do it in the right way. The AG has a responsibility when... People are dying at the rate that they were dying with fentanyl. And Weiser certainly stepped up and tried to get that changed and that law changed. He took a position on that, and that's what he should have done, because he is a law enforcement official, and he may not be responsible for parole, parolees getting out and killing people, all of those kind of things, but he certainly has a responsibility to talk about it. And I think he did, but... You know, we weren't out there to criticize him. The fact that he was running for reelection, you know, maybe he felt that way, but he was wrong. He was dead wrong. And I sat down and talked to him about it when the report came out and the criticism didn't come when he was looking me in the eye. The criticism came when he was getting interviewed by the Gazette. And that's when he criticized my work and that report and that's dishonest so you know that's just the way i saw it and i called him on it i didn't do it publicly i did it personally but i was like you know phil when i came down and talked to you you didn't have any of these concerns and you'd read the report he's a smart guy you know so well that's that's the way that went down but you're absolutely right that The buck stops at the DA's desk. Mm -hmm. It really does. Right. And, you know, the DA has a responsibility to go up to the Capitol and try to keep the legislature from doing the stupid things they've been doing for the last 15 years in this state. And it's it's this strange. It's policy. It's a policy that's causing this crime rate. You know, we have talked about the forensics. We've talked about how you don't have these serial rapists that go uncaptured for as long as they have you have things like you know cell phone records you have you know you should have um, there's all kinds of technology the crime rate should be going down and it's not and it's because of policy, not because Law enforcement doesn't have the techniques to fight crime.
1: Well, so, so to... if right. you know, but policy and politics kind of go together and the Dems can go too far to the left. And I'm thinking about when we grew up under Dale Tooley, who was a prominent Democrat, Norm Early, Bill Ritter, hell, elected governor as a Democrat. And yet I don't think we were like that. Right. We were kind of tough on crime. So we were
3: prosecutors.
1: Right. So but so can't we can't you coach up these Democrats, make them more like we were?
3: I couldn't when I was D.A. I go up there and fight against things. uh, You know, it was almost personal attacks sometimes from them Hmm. Uh, when I would go up there with things that would make make Colorado safer. Like taking DNA upon misdemeanor conviction, mm-hmm. not on arrest, right. on conviction, on crimes like domestic violence crimes, animal abuse, child abuse, taking their DNA and making sure they're in that database. Because I had statistics from the state of New York that showed that when they took, mis- they took DNA on misdemeanor convictions, they saw multiple rapes. They saw they caught serial rapists and it was black and white. It was right there. You could read it. Their data was incredible. And I would and you say the dams. It wasn't just the dams. I mean, the the Republican a Republican senator, very conservative, says, I've got to go with the ACLU on this one. Oh. The lady sitting next to me said, you're concerned about their right of privacy. We're talking about they've been convicted. We can take away their liberty. Their right to liberty has been lost because they beat their wife, because they abused their child, because they killed that animal. And you're telling me you're concerned about their privacy? And he just, you know, so it was right, a but maybe maybe
1: it's a new day and maybe I'm Pollyannish, but I just represented a guy named Bob Marshall. I wrote about him for the Colorado Sun, a Marine, a lifelong Republican, got turned off by Trump. Then he got activated and he became a dem and he just won in a Highlands Ranch. And he would listen to you on this. And he's on the Judiciary Committee now. And people do care about crime. And I want to focus on the big ticket item because all these crimes, you can come back from a misdemeanor or a car theft or even, God forbid, a sexual assault. Please just let the person live. But nobody comes back from murder. And don't you agree of all the cases that affect you and your major job? And I do think you deserve credit. And Jerry Whitman, too. We don't want murder, right? We have to do everything we can to avoid murder. And part of it comes down to guns and our culture in the Denver DA's office. And you were there a lot longer than me was if you've got a bad guy with a gun, you better take care of that. That's a priority. Am I right?
3: That was a priority. No question about that. But when you talk about murder, Craig, look what they did to felony murder. Right. Right. I mean how many bad guys does it take to commit this particular type of murder and would it have taken place at all if it wasn't for the wheelman that was sitting out in the car who was going to get him out of the bank make sure they got a clean getaway when the guy in the bank murders the teller you know i think it was respond it was incredibly important that that doctrine that had been respected for years and years in this state, that's first-degree murder. And the word that I've heard recently when it comes to murder is that extreme indifference murder is going to basically become second-degree murder. Now, the shooting down in Colorado Springs may prevent that from happening this year, but there's the forces out there are pushing on that and make extreme indifference murder, where you shoot into a crowd, where you walk into a bar, not to kill any particular person or deliberate about killing this person. You just start spraying bullets around. That's first degree murder. That should be treated the same way as deliberate murder. But there's people in this state, and I wouldn't be surprised in the next couple of years after that case kind of starts to wind down and you know, hopefully justice gets, gets taken in that case, but there are people out there that want to change extreme indifference murder to basically second degree murder. So even policy wise, there is an attack on the crime that you're very, that you're talking about in our state and people need to realize that and recognize what's going on. And I, and I firmly believe that now that the death penalty is gone in Colorado, there will be a move to change life without parole from being that and go back to what we used to see where it meant 20 years or 10 years, and there'll be a move to do that. Right. I firmly believe that. So when you say this is the crime that you want to try to prevent, there are... Are thing There are people out there, they may or may not be elected, but they are trying to erode that in our state. And you need to be very careful about that and you need to be watchful because that's what's going on up at the Capitol. The worst part of my job was walking up there and, and dealing with the people up there. I used to say I would rather go to a homicide scene. And see the horrible things that you see there and go up to the Capitol and try to, you know, get some common sense going here, folks. And I'm not saying that they're all like that, but it was it was bizarre up there most of the time, Craig. And I don't know if you've ever spent that any time in there up there, but I just had a real problem with it and a problem with what they were doing. You know, around some of those horrible juvenile homicides that you were involved in prosecuting, people that killed pregnant girls and their boyfriends because they had broken up, mm-hmm. people that tortured Judge Spar's son to oh, death. Oh, my God. Yes. You know, people, Sean Lining. So, some,
1: some more home invasion crimes, Terrence Mayo and Rochelle Peterson murdered and by young people. And you said, Craig, you miss it. Honestly, prosecuting young teenagers for murder, that was kind of my swan song. I I wanted to be the DA, but I was a little burnt out prosecuting, you know,
3: teenagers. Well, they were teenagers, but they were incredibly dangerous people. Mm -hmm. And thank God we aren't seeing that kind of thing like we did there. Because I was there too, Craig. You were in one courtroom, I was in another courtroom. We were facing incredible crimes committed by young people, but they, you know, I'll never forget meeting Sean Linen's wife and son, a son he never saw, a young Denver policeman who the last words out of his mouth was begging for his life just before he got shot in the head by A juvenile. You know, they were capable of doing horrendous things to people. And we recognized that and we handled those cases appropriately, I believe. Right. Should they have ended up with life without parole? No. The Supreme Court said no. So you go back in, but you don't plea bargain the case. Right. You go back in and decide if they get life without parole or if they get life where they could have parole after 40 years. And a lot of those guys had done a lot of that time. And what happened on those cases, and I remember calling you on one of them and saying, Craig, this is what's happening on that case. They're reopening that and they're plea bargaining bargaining it. That's not right. That's not what you told the father of that girl, that he'd never get out of prison because of the job that you did and the horrible crime that he committed. But that changed because of that law, and then they took advantage of that law, and they plea bargained those cases. I had a case with Bill Ritter, where we convicted a 17-year-old and his father of kidnapping and murdering a man. But they kidnapped another man who survived first-degree kidnapping, got dismissed, And they never even spoke to the victim about it. That's wrong. That was wrong. And that's not what that Supreme Court case that said juveniles have a right to have this determination made. That is not what that case stood for. And I think there were a lot of people in the criminal justice system that were wrong to do it that way and let that happen. Judges let that happen.
1: Yeah, and, you and I you know, have seen, I remember, Yeah, I mean, the pendulum you, has swung in our lifetime, sentencing, and I always expected it would swing back. It just, why does it have to swing so severely?
3: I don't know, Craig, but you cannot blame just the Democrats. You know, when you say the Democrats this, the Democrats that, because I heard some things come out of, it's people on the extreme ends of both sides that would come out. And would it would align, not for the same reasons, but, you know, they would align against things like taking DNA upon arrest, taking DNA after misdemeanor convictions on certain types of crimes that you could prove these are individuals that are committing these other crimes, these murders, these rapes. Yes. And we can catch him soon. I, I, I'm with you on that. So, you know, I, I don't blame, you know, when I, I mean, you say the Dems. I mean, you know, well, I was I, a Democrat I, and I was elected as one. Uh, but, you know, I'd get up there and I couldn't tell one from the other about half the time.
1: If you recall, I prosecuted Michael Cazada, along with Tom Clinton. He killed three people at Club Temptation back in sure. the summer of violence, and he was just a badass gang guy. Killed three GW graduates. That wasn't cool, and he, we brought him back from California and convicted right. him. And you've handled some horrible mass murders, and you brought up the Colorado Springs Club Q case. And I don't know how much you've d- dived into it, but I wondered if this guy could have been stopped because, again, it's a young person with a gun, But he had, on June 18, 2021, uh, been surrounded by SWAT, in unincorporated El Paso County. His grandparents reported that he pointed a gun at them, started drinking vodka, and said he was going to blow up the house. He showed them bomb-making stuff. Eventually, they ran out. And uh, he got charged with class two felonies and a bunch of big crimes, but the grandparents moved to Florida. They didn't want to cooperate. And the case was dismissed. Uh, Have you followed this? Yeah,
3: I've been, I've followed it. I've been in, you know, I've had people from, I forget, was it the AP asked me about it. I had, uh, You know, somebody from the Gazette asked me about it. Right,
1: and people ask you about the hate crime law, bias-motivated crime, which is an interesting issue in general, but not so much in this case, because he's going to be locked up for the rest of his life. Wouldn't you agree? This is a slam-dunk case. So the issue to me is, why did this happen? Why was this guy in a position to do this?
3: Well, you know, when they asked me, Well, didn't the prosecutor make a mistake in this case? Now, I said he he got him indicted. And three weeks before speedy trial, he didn't have his witnesses. And he couldn't get in their statements. And if they testified in front of the grand jury, he couldn't use those transcripts because he didn't have the people. And I don't know the scenario about how deep under these people went, but. An uncooperative witness can be very difficult, and especially when they're out of state. Right, but easily anticipated in a case like this, correct? Well, it could be, yes. And, you know, and what they tried to do and what they didn't. You mentioned Tom Clinton. Tom Clinton is a dear friend of mine. He canceled a lunch with me this week, but on a regular basis, I CTC. And I used to try cases with Tom Clinton. Incredible trial lawyer. We were doing a murder case and our star witness went down under. He disappeared on us and. We had to send an investigator down to Florida. He spent over two weeks doing surveillance and finally found the guy. We had to get him into Florida court and even then he could have probably walked away the the point
1: of this is there's a law, a uniform law. Florida has signed off, so is Colorado. If you initiate the process, you can force a witness to come
3: back. Well, the way it went down was this, Craig. He brought him in front of the judge, and the judge said, Listen, you get on that plane or you're going to jail here. And our jail's not air conditioned, and I'm going on vacation. I'll be back at the end of the summer. <laughs> so you can spend the entire summer in an un air-conditioned jail, and you're not going to like it, so get on that plane, but there was nobody that put cuffs on him and made him get on that plane. Sure, he would have had to answer to that that Florida judge because of the very rules that you're talking about, and we had properly renditioned him, but we had, like you said, we had a lot of warning that that was going to happen, We invested a lot of resources to finding him there. And I don't know that case well enough to be able to uh,
1: Right, but you as the DA uh, now, or I mean, you did it for 12 years. There's an expenditure to that kind of thing. But that case you and TC were, were doing, it was important enough for you to spend the money and the effort, right?
3: Right, if you knew about it. If you had enough advance notice of it, and I don't know, you know, I don't know if these grandparents right up to the end were saying, I don't know if they could find them. I don't know if these grandparents said we're on board and changed their mind. All I know is that they were up against it. All right. So here's what you running.
1: do. Yeah, but, but Mitch. I think you would have done better because that's what the Mitch well, Morris, the I trained, would have done. You would have looked through but, that big blue statute book and you would have said, oh, there's a live stream of this guy threatening the cops. We had a governmental standoff. But here's the kicker, Mitch. The guy said to his grandparents, I want to be a mass murderer. Right.
3: And that's said, why he was mad. That's why he was mad they were moving to Florida, because he wanted to do his mass murder here.
1: So couldn't you come up with interference with governmental operations? Isn't it illegal to have a gun, a firearm, while you're uh, shit-faced chugging vodka? And, and,
3: yeah, Craig, and, and I don't know what they presented to the grand jury for No, they, they
1: didn't go to a grand jury. It was just a complaint information. All the DA had to do was sign his name to a few misdemeanors to keep him in the system, and and the guy's going to mess up. Anyway, and then the red flag law aspect of the case I know that Bill Elder down there and Michael Allen, the DA, they don't like the red flag law. It's just like those Republicans you're talking about. Some guy's going to tell you that it's unconstitutional to take uh, the blood of a misdemeanor convict. No, it's not. But he's going to lecture you on con law like I hear Bill Elder going on the radio now saying, hey, I'm not going to enforce the red flag law because it's unconstitutional. It violates people's Fourth Amendment rights because – it's initiated ex party. Well, everything's initiated ex party. I I think the red flag law is important, and we've had it in effect for a while. We haven't seen it abused in Colorado. Anyway,
3: that's uh, that's where the prevention could happen because yes. the red light, you know, red flag law, and then you know, it had the had, had gone to buy these guns. It would have, he would have been flagged. And, but I think
1: he may know, have made it. He had a 3D printer, which was in yeah. the report, too. And that would have caught the eye of a Mitch Morrissey. He would have said, hey, did you get that? He spent thirty grand, according to a relative, and he maybe made a ghost gun. I mean—
3: Right. He, you know, and all of those things, you know, it, all of those things— and that's what I said. That you could have had different charges— you right. know, clearly there's a SWAT team there. Clearly there are threats and things like that going on. But those charges weren't there as far as when the speedy trial was well, running. But so what, what about, what about an, a about,
1: class four felony bomb
3: making material?
1: Why didn't they go with that?
3: I don't know. I can't tell you why they didn't charge I, him I, with I can tell every you. single charge they could have brought. Um, certainly they thought the threats to the grandparents those kinds of things, you know, the the holding them, keeping them from leaving those kind of the kidnapping aspects of it were the most serious charges. Right. Um, and they brought those charges and speedy trial ran out. I don't know if it was their fault for not have securing those people and getting them back here. They certainly didn't do that. Couldn't do that. And the court dismissed it. Could they have brought a bunch of a whole prep of Prathola other charges? Sure, they probably could have. Um, and, but i got to also tell you, with the work we've done with the Common Sense Institute, 30, I think it was 35, 36% of the homicide victims were killed by people in 2021 in Denver that were under supervision of the criminal justice system. They were either on parole, probation, community corrections, or bond or PR bond. So this idea that had they prosecuted him for a misdemeanor, now if it was a misdemeanor that would have kept him from being able to buy or buy a gun, then that's that you know, then that would have had a difference. But I don't quite frankly, you look at the criminal justice system, it's letting the state of Colorado down, the people of the state of Colorado. There's a whole lot of people that are supposed to be being watched by this, being supervised by this institution that are killing people. Right. And so, you know, to say, okay, had he brought this misdemeanor charge and convicted him, he might have been serving some time. He might have been under the supervision of a probation department. He might have been getting some mental health treatment. I don't think you can say that anymore, Craig. No, I, there was a time I, yeah. where we could have said, mm-hmm. where I know you said to, to fathers that lost their pregnant daughter to a murder. He won't ever get out of prison. You told him that father that because he said that in court when he was getting going to get that opportunity to get out. And it wasn't to get out after 40, like the law said. It was going to be a plea bargain deal. And he said, wait a minute. Craig Silverman told me he would never get out. And now he's going to get out. And, you know, the things things change and it's hard to foresee the future. But I don't really trust that because someone's on parole, because someone is on probation, getting treatment, all those things that we try to do for people that need that is going to make a difference.
1: You are 100% correct that even if the guy was in the system, this tragedy might not have been prevented. But what is your attitude toward uh, law enforcement officers and DAs who are resistant to the red flag law? Colorado Springs, when you run for office down there, you have to say, we are a Second Amendment sanctuary city. We won't respect these laws coming out of the Capitol. And the next guy running says, well, You're a sanctuary Second Amendment guy. I'm a super sanctuary Second Amendment guy. And they compete to see who can be the most pro-gun. And to me, I'm thinking, what are you doing? Is there any level of accountability for that? I mean—
3: Well, there should be. There absolutely should be. It's the law of the land. Your responsibility when you take that oath is to uphold the laws of Colorado— and to uphold the Colorado and the United States Constitution. That's your responsibility. You have to set aside the politics and do that job. And, you know, they fought like crazy to keep that from being the law. They went to court to try to get it thrown out. But at some point, they have a responsibility to enforce the law. And that's their job. And if they can't do that... Based on the oath that they take, they need to walk away from the job. But
1: what if they they say, like Bill Elder, hey, I have my opinion about the Fourth Amendment. I judge this unconstitutional. And guess what? I know an attorney or two, even some of them on the radio who agree with me. So there, I'm not going to enforce it.
3: Well... You know, that's somebody that should walk away from the job because he's violating the oath that he took to uphold Colorado law. That is Colorado law. I mean, Craig, you know, when we were talking about you getting on the Rodriguez case, you went and sat, you thought about it. You know, it's like, is this something I can do? You know, and if it's not something you can do, then you don't you don't do it. You don't sign up for it. Somebody else let somebody else do that. I mean, We all have our personal and political opinions, but when you get elected to do a job, when you get hired to do a job that requires you to take an oath to uphold the law, then you have to uphold the law. And if you're not willing to do it because you're not going to get reelected or it just doesn't, you know, your personal opinion on the second amendment or something. That's not right. It's not right for prosecutors to not bring charges because they are revolutionizing the criminal justice system. You know, the things that are going on there are the same types of things. You're sworn to uphold the law. Now you bring the charges, you do what you think's right as far as just disposing of the case, what's fair as far as Uh, a plea bargain that kind of thing obviously you have the right to do all of that but you've got to uphold the law and prosecutors that won't bring charges uh cops that won't enforce the law they they should be in a different line of work
1: i tell people the two biggest words in the criminal justice system prosecutorial discretion i mean your judgment on a case might be different than somebody in Boulder. You brought up Stan Garnett. He decided the death penalty wasn't good for his community. How do you square that?
3: I mean, well, you're not talking to somebody that that brought the death penalty much. Craig um I was lucky. I prosecuted a death penalty case, and I understood what that took. We didn't get the death penalty on John Morris who killed a six-year-old little girl after brutally raping her. Um, and we didn't get the death penalty. We got first-degree murder, and shortly after Morris got to the penitentiary, he died. So he served his life sentence. But we we sought the death penalty, we fought the fight. We did all the things that, that you need to do in that case. Uh, but I'll rem- I, I'll never forget, you know, when I when I did decide that we needed to seek the death penalty in Denver on a on a man that basically laid five people down on the floor of a bar, Pharaoh's Bar. The old G and him with a knife.
1: I've been in that place so many times. South Colorado Boulevard. A little
3: stabbed him to death. Alameda Four area. of them women. I just imagined in my mind what was going through their mind while they were listening to their friend being stabbed to death. And I sought the death penalty there. And I had Joe Morales and Matt Winnick try that case. The jury came back with 30 aggravators in the second phase. And then one juror said, I can't do this anymore. Mm -hmm. And it was life. It was five lives and all of that. It was my responsibility to bring those charges and make that decision. And I got criticized for it. And I'll never forget, Westford wrote an article. It's like, why is Morrissey doing this? You know, the head of his party, who is now a senator, who is governor, you know, Hickenlooper, he's against the death penalty. These folks are against it. Everybody's against it. And their final conclusion was, maybe he's just doing it because it's the right thing to do in this case. And they never criticized me again. they criticized me a lot while I was in in office, but they never criticized me again and you know it was because that was a death penalty case. There was no doubt it was an individual that was on parole. it was an individual that hurt people. It was an individual that butchered people, and I made the well I believe I made the right decision you did. And, you know, the jury did what jurors do. And when somebody said, well, you know, isn't this a good reason to get rid of the death penalty? I said, absolutely not. This was an appropriate death penalty case and the system worked. Jurors have the right to do what that juror did. And she didn't do anything improper. She did what, you know, and maybe she shouldn't have been on that jury and maybe. She should have been kicked off or whatever. Mm-hmm. But the system worked. And the as far as I know, the death penalty system in Colorado worked. The fact that you get it or not doesn't mean it didn't work. And but it so, became
1: it became a little unsustainable because that Piero's uh non-death sentence, that was bad. But then the Aurora Theater Massacre for that guy. To be spared, and I know it's the system but,
4: working. But Craig,
3: right, it wasn't insanity, but it was a sick man. There's no question right. about that, and that's enough in a death penalty case. That's enough for a jury to say, "Whoa, well, no, we're not going to do this." Right, but because it's it, it, right, but it, and but, you, uh, you know as well as I do, you have to look at those things like that course. when you're talking death penalty. And Frank Rodriguez was a perfect example of that. And you saw all of the mitigation about, you know, his mother drank too much and he probably suffered from some kind his, of. His father did heroin with him. Horrible guy, you know, all of that. And you guys had factored all of that in and you had figured all of that out. But there. <laughs> there's no perfect case, and there's certainly no perfect death penalty case. Uh, right, but case.
1: that guy who killed uh, all those people at the Aurora Theater, I don't even like saying his name. You know, it, for Frank Rodriguez to die for his atrocity and this guy to kill over a dozen people, you know what I mean? It just becomes sure. harder. Sure. And, and then the legislature but, got rid of it, and, and there we are. But you know who hasn't gotten rid of it? And I also I went to that uh, trial, watched Joe Morales and Matt do their thing, and was mm-hmm. disappointed with that verdict. And I also covered the federal trial of Tim McVeigh and Terry Nichols. McVeigh sure. is sentenced to death. Terry Nichols spared by just one juror. But the feds uh-huh. do have a death penalty. And I'm wondering, because I was never the elected DA, when did you say, hey— Maybe the feds can take care of this because we can't do the job. And would that be a proper call for the Colorado Springs DA to make to Cole Finnegan, U.S. attorney? Hey, we've got five people murdered at Club Q. We don't have a death penalty here, but you guys do. Take a look.
3: Well, I think that's what happened in Boston.
1: Right. With the Marathon. brothers, right.
3: Yeah. That, you know, Massachusetts doesn't have the death penalty. Mm-hmm. But uh, it, a lot of times it depends on who your victims are. Clearly, in the, in the Oklahoma City bombing, there were federal employees, there were federal agents, there were people where it was easy for the feds to take that case mm-hmm. because they were crimes against federal employees. And so that case was, a, was well suited. If not, that was the appropriate place for it to be tried. And so, you know... What I was asked is, is this statement by his attorneys that he is binary or non-binary? I forget what he is. Non-binary. Non-binary. Is this a ploy? Is this some stunt that they're pulling? And I thought, well, you know, the only way that that could be or matter, because we don't have the death penalty in Colorado, and they do have a federal death penalty, is if that's an aggravating factor in the federal death penalty. And they may be trying to avoid that by making these kinds of statements. And, you know, to, to back potentially Cole Finnegan off from bringing the charges at the federal level, because that is an aggravating factor. And I looked at it. And my interpretation was that it is not an aggravated factor at the federal level. So I found it very rarely did the federal prosecutors step into our cases. I I never called them and asked them to. Uh, I did call them when Darren Williams got killed. Thank goodness I was part of the task force that was looking at the gangs that were around those guys and missing the Elite Eight, which were the group that knew who killed Darren Williams on New Year's Eve yeah, 2000. That, that time's
1: coming up again, too, the end of the Broncos season. What a sadness. So many cases you're involved in. Keep going, because I'm curious when you the, get the feds involved.
3: Well, I was part of a federal task force and I begged them you know, extend your wire to these guys. And they said, yeah, we will, Mitch, but you need to attach a investigator to the task force. And I said, well, you know, I have been cut my budget. I don't have anybody. So I went and asked the mayor to open my budget and give me a, an investigator to do this important work. I was told no. So I went to city council and they said, and talked about gangs and the problems, and what can we do about this? And I told him exactly what we could do about it and exactly how much it would cost. And about a week later, I had the individual that I could attach to that task force. His name was Bob Fuller. Bob Fuller spent most of his career in the Adams County Sheriff's Office. I was able to bring him on once he retired, he was the top. Gang guy in the state of Colorado. He could go down and sit on the five, watch the news at five, and call people up and say, "I know who has, who owns that van. These are the guys you should be looking at." He was that kind of guy. I attached him to that task force. They extend, they expended, extended their wire they kept it up for another month they got information on the amount of drugs these gang this gang this elite eight was was dealing they charged them with the federal crimes and they were looking at such long sentences they cooperated with us and told us who killed darren williams and told us who killed kalani Ann clark who was one of our witnesses against the head of the gang and based on what we learned And based on the whole federal indictments, those guys were our witnesses, Craig, in the state prosecutions. I laid out the timeline. I told them how long it would take, how much it would cost. Hickenlooper told me no. City Council told me yes. And we were successful at bringing justice for Darren Williams' mom. And I got to stand next to her when that jury came back after the outstanding work that Tim Twining and Bruce Levin and Bruce has died. Bruce died of cancer. Uh, And, you know, they just did an incredible job. And it took a long time for justice in that case. It took a long time for justice for Kalani Ann Clark. um, Who was shot
1: Ann Stringer door just off Monaco, as I recall. And let me tell you the big league job you did. Because when you swing and miss at a murderer, they're going to kill other people, right? I mean, those are the stakes. If you don't bring a killer to justice, there's a good chance that more people are going to get killed. Does that go through your head?
3: That goes through your head, but I'll tell you what really goes through your head is those family members Mm -hmm. that are waiting for answers. And that's why the work, and you brought it up and we've talked about it, that we do at United Data Connect. You know, the sad thing about that, when we have the answer, usually the person that needs to know the answer the most has died. They've gone on, you know, the parents, the uncles and the aunts, you know, that we, we, we uh, solved one in Douglas County where this young girl came from Massachusetts to do an internship at KOA. She was riding the bus out South Broadway. She's staying with her uncle and her aunt. She was only going to be here for about three weeks. But I know what it's like for your brother or your sister mm-hmm. to entrust their child with you. And she didn't come home. And she got murdered in a field in Douglas County found there after she'd been raped. And we solved that crime. And the only person left to speak for her and her family was her little sister. And her little sister was almost my age. And she waited that long. But everybody, and I can't imagine what it was like for that uncle and aunt for the rest of their lives to not know You know, and they were entrusted with this girl's life with, you know, taking care of her and they died without ever having answers, without ever knowing. And, you know, I'm not a strong believer in closure because you wake up the next day and that hole in your heart's still there. You still don't have your daughter. You still don't have your, you know, your son, whoever. And I know what these homicide victims go through. And that's why when you say you swing and you miss uh, there may be another family that suffers right. that kind of anguish. And you knew that, Craig. I saw you deal with victims. I saw you talk to mothers and fathers that had lost, you know, teenage kids, uh, lost their daughters, that kind of thing. You understood it. We all understood it. Uh, and it was important. But it was also important to do the job right, to do it in a way that was you know, respected the rights of the individual in a way that, you know, was ethical. Because, you know, it's a swing and a miss when they reverse your case and you can't re-prosecute it, too. Mm-hmm. And that, that was, I think that that was one of the stressors that was on all of us. But, uh, you know, we were, we were lucky. We were brought up. We were trained. All those things. We were at a time when it, when it was right. And I hope it's still that way. I've lost touch pretty much with what goes on in the Denver DA's office now. But, um, you know, it was important what we were doing. It was a, it was a rough time crack cocaine, oh, yeah. all of the things that hit the city. It's kind of like this fentanyl now. You know, I'd never seen anything like this stuff.
1: It's horrible. I represent it kills some hundreds, hundreds oh, of people. It's unbelievable. It,
3: It kills four or five people a day Mm -hmm. in Colorado. And I don't know. I guess I'm just lucky I didn't have to deal with it. I,
1: I just want to go back to people with violent tendencies, like Frank Rodriguez, for example. Because when I was in complaints, and occasionally there are borderline cases, and I'd say to the detective, and I worked long enough ago that they would be smoking cigarettes, I'd say to them, what kind of cigarette are we smoking here? Because I was smoking it as much as they were. But that's that's another story. But the bottom line, I'd say, what do we know about this person? And then I'd look at their criminal justice record or hear this or that. Because uh, just as you've figured out with DNA, these people tend to get in trouble. That's why you want to get misdemeanors, um, swabbed, etc. Do you remember a guy named Nelson Stubblefield? Famously yeah. threw a water pitcher at Brenda and Bill Ritter, Brenda Taylor and Bill Ritter. He killed... I remember.
3: Go ahead, Chris. Now
1: you go ahead. Do you remember no. him?
3: Tell me, tell me, remind me. Uh, I, know was, the I think
1: it was in front of Dick Spriggs in courtroom 11. He was on trial for brutal sexual assault murder, and he threw a water pitcher at the prosecutors. He was just one of those guys who are scary. You know, you could read his record. You could see him in court. You could say, this guy is going to hurt people. Anyway, uh, when I was a baby DA in county court, he had come through county court, courtroom 9H, and there was just a second degree criminal trespass misdemeanor. But I looked at his record and I said, this is my most important case because this guy's going to cause trouble. And I think I got him locked uh, locked up for three or four months And then he came out even meaner and he committed those murders. But do you know what I mean? It's uh, some people just need to be isolated and for the protection of the public. And that's the big job of a prosecutor to identify those people and make that happen.
3: You know, I I used to I used to deal with a lot of young lawyers when I was the elected DA and they come back and say the jury acquitted him, Mitch. I said, did you do the best job you could? Did you argue the argument? Did you put in the evidence? Did you do your job? Because it's not your job to find them guilty. It's the jury's job. And then when they come back and say, you know, did you hear what Judge so-and-so gave that guy? You know, we worked so hard. We tried the case. I said, well, you know, did you argue the arguments that you needed to? Did you do the best you could at sentencing? Did the victim have an opportunity to address the court? Because they have a right to. Did you make sure that happened? Yeah.
1: See, I well, would say that to Michael. You don't Allen. sentence him, right. Craig. Right. No, I, you I, I get him. you. But in the high don't
3: find them guilty. Right. You do your job. I understand. You Do it the best you can, as professionally and ethically as you can. If somebody else drops the ball, then. It's on them. All right,
1: and the hindsight's twenty you know. twenty. 20 but if Michael Allen came to me as an elder statesman, I'd say, did you think about a misdemeanor? Did you think about a felony bomb charge? I know you don't charge everybody who's drunk with a weapon, but how about this guy? It's a misdemeanor. Why not say, look, this guy's talking about being a mass murderer. Let's get him in the system. Let's watch this guy. Even if his grandparents don't want to cooperate, let's find a way to get him in the system Bill Elder came on the radio and said you know what we did I don't like the red flag law but we took all his guns and we kept them even after the case was dismissed and good for us well you could have kept it going longer and and that's sure. the thing you, and I know do you see what I'm saying does that make yeah, sense? Yeah Greg I don't
3: disagree with you at all you know I just gotta tell you I've been in that situation and I know you have too where you did everything you could do or you thought you did, and then you're getting second-guessed, I know what that's like, right, and babe, you know, sometimes that's appropriate right. to second-guess and to ask those questions. And and that's why I tell you, I never once felt uncomfortable going in front of the media because I could explain what we did and why. Mm-hmm. I could, I could explain what the case was about, why my people did what they did, what we believed at the time, all of those kinds of things, was I right all the time? Absolutely not. Was could I have been second? You know, guessed? Could I, there have been somebody saying, "Well, what about this? What about that?" Yeah, all of those things are the, are are correct. But the one thing I would never do when I was the district attorney was comment on someone else's case. Some, you know, Stan Garnett or you know. Uh, Don Quick or you know George Brockler out in Arapahoe. that I felt was not appropriate because I didn't know the facts the case was not presented to me I didn't understand it so when they would call and ask me to do that kind of thing I was like I don't comment on that kind of thing because I understand the complexities of the cases that come before me and I don't understand the complexities of that case they had there and I don't know enough to know you know why that prosecution fell apart but
1: sometimes you do because the first yeah, time I started and and maybe I'm wrong but I did it even while I was a chief deputy People came to me about O.J. Simpson and I offered my opinion and I still think that the prosecutors blew that case. You're the all-time DNA expert. I mean, is it fair to second-guess them or would you apply that same rule? Hey, I don't know enough. There we know pretty much.
3: Well, I'll tell you, I know the two guys that put on the DNA in that case. One of them's dad, Woody Clark, and the other is Rock Harmon, Rockne Harmon, graduate of the Naval Academy, a World, a, a uh, Vietnam veteran. He served time on those riverboats that Kerry spent his time in Vietnam on. He's a guy that I know would stand back to back with me, because he helped me all along when I was learning DNA, because he was one of the only people that knew it. And he'll do a presentation. You should go and see him talk about the things that they were not allowed to put in, the mountain of DNA evidence that they had, the mixture of Nicole Simpson's blood, OJ's blood, and Goldman's blood on the inside handle of the door, the driver's side door of the Bronco, a mixture of all of the people involved in that. So he can give you better insight than I can, But he would he'd be the first to tell you that they were not allowed. They didn't get to put on the best evidence that they had. And part of it was the defense strategy, rush the case to trial before, you know, mixtures and sorting out mixtures with DNA was it was coming, but it hadn't come yet. It hadn't been ruled admissible in California. And there was incredible evidence that didn't get before that jury. And so, you know, you second guess Garcetti moving the
1: you know, absolutely
3: the, moving it from where from Santa Jay Monica to downtown to L.A. downtown L.A. You know, as well as I do, the difference. He chose to live in a certain community. He should have had a jury from that community. And that would have potentially made a huge difference in that case. But you know he probably practically said listen they don't have a big enough courthouse you know i don't know what his now,
1: right best, it was and but- you know that that brings me back yeah just you no know, keep going on oj because it is fascinating you know more about it but I, I i the decision not to bring a case uh in your book you talk about norm Early not bringing the allen Bird case and You guys were pretty harsh on Norm, and I thought it was justified, and I loved Norm. And I talked to him about it in his last interview. We talked about so many great things. But, you know, you were talking about second-guessing decisions. Uh, You can keep going on OJ, but in your book, you you write about Norm Early's decision not to bring charges in Denver. Did you write that, or Norm, or both of you? No, I
3: wrote it. I wrote it. Can I I read
1: it. it to everybody right now?
3: If you want to, sure. I mean, I'd, I, have, uh, I
1: don't uh, have it uh, no, in front of me, yeah, to go now, ahead. F- finish it up about OJ if you want, but it comes down well, to the w- same thing, which is, you know, what what courthouse are you going to use? That's the first decision a, a DA makes. Normally, it's the one, you know, right there, but sometimes it's different.
3: Sure. It's where the person lives. I mean, I, I never had the luxury of having more than one courthouse, but, uh, you know, out there they they seem to. And, you know, I think that was a that was a mistake. Uh, there were a lot of mistakes made. Um, you know, who knows? The, didn't one of the prosecutors have some health issues that he had to bow out of the case? Who knows? He right. may have made And, and
1: Christopher Darden um, and uh, what was her name? Yeah. Marsha Clark, her real name, Marsha Hurwitz, didn't they that, have an affair during the trial, too? That couldn't Yeah,
3: help. Craig, you know, the, I can't comment on a lot of that stuff, but... Uh, Well, there were there were mistakes made, no doubt there were there were strategies by the defense that were very effective. Um, You know, those the guys that came in and challenged the DNA, uh, they did a good job. I think they regretted the job they did because they eventually set up the Innocence Project Mm -hmm. where they used the very science that they attacked. To not only get innocent people out, but to make an awful lot of money with the, with the civil lawsuits that they brought right. after the fact.
1: Barry Sheck and, and I, Peter Newfield, as I recall.
3: They regretted, I think, the chop they did in yeah, OJ. Yeah, it's, it, it's hard
1: for me to take the Innocence Project serious enough, knowing that Barry Sheck used DNA to get OJ off.
3: Right. So, you know, those things go on, but it's hard to to second-guess people. It's hard to armchair quarterback you know and when you're in the arena and you're being you know you're you're being asked to make those calls you got to make them and i know but are you, you did, always right no but you're not you, always you right. did
1: second guess norm and i'm going to read this and sure. uh,
3: i mean well norm was criticized. Oh, no we, kidding. You know? Let me let
1: me just read this. The background, of course, was June 18, 1984, that Allenberg was shot dead, 1400 block of Adams Street. Your book details it. It rocked my world because I used to listen to Allenberg. I was a young deputy DA, not of sufficient stature to get involved in this, but I was in the office. Were you already in the office as of Allenberg sure. getting killed?
3: Sure. And so, I started in 83.
1: Yeah, so you were like me looking up at who was it, Jeff Valis and David Heckenbach? uh, They went out. And they decided, no, we're going to let the feds do it. They're going to be tried for RICO in Seattle. And I'm thinking, wow, four people come to Colorado, Denver, to kill a Jewish guy, to suppress his freedom of speech, and we're not going to prosecute it. And Norm said we didn't have sufficient security at the city and county building. I read that one day and I'm thinking, what? Come on, we're going to spend whatever it takes to bring justice here, maybe even a death penalty. Anyway, this is Mitch Morrissey on page 242 of his amazing book. Early received significant criticism in 1984 for his failure to bring criminal charges against a group of neo-Nazis responsible for the murder of popular but acerbic radio talk show host Alan Berg, who was Jewish. An automatic weapons-wielding assailant gunned down Berg in front of his Capitol Hill apartment. The evidence eventually led to a right-wing white supremacist group known as The Order. Even though the killers of Berg were convicted on federal charges and given long prison sentences, Early's reluctance for fiscal reasons to try the killers on state criminal charges was roundly condemned. So wow. I mean that those were the facts, great. I, I agree. Did you ever and talk to Norm about this?
3: It was footnoted. Uh yes. Denver Post, June 17th, 2019, mm-hmm. website. two thousand nine. You, know, you can go and read about it. June 17th, thousand nine. Right. So so I stated the facts there. Mm-hmm. Um I never got to talk to Norm about it. Um I You know, and I was lucky enough to be in front of Jeff Bayless, who I think was the best judge that I have ever been in front of or ever seen. And he was a man that I respected that. And I don't know the advice he gave Norm, but, you know, I mean, he sent his people out and he saw what they did and he made a decision. And, you know, I don't think he made it out of any animus towards Allen Berg I think that, you know, I don't know. I I don't really know the state of the evidence. I know that the gun sits in the Denver crime lab to this day that he was gunned down with because it's one of those unique weapons that they have in their gun library. And you can look at it when you look at the gun library that they have. There's the weapon that killed Allen Burke. I know that. I've seen that. But he was roundly, you know, he was criticized, roundly criticized. Uh, and I don't know what he was considering. People do get out, used to escape from the city and county building. You remember when they, they, had, they, they shot an individual's way out of a there. A
1: knicky Then right. they go down the so back So it steps. did happen there. It wasn't
3: the safest place. wasn't the most secure place. And certainly in the new justice system or a courthouse, is much more secure,
1: but not as um, good. I
3: don't really remember his reasons. I knew it was that financially, it it didn't make. He didn't think it made sense, uh, but I never had an opportunity to talk about it. Now,
2: did but you I'll ever? I'll give say you another I, example,
3: yeah. Craig. Please, Go Bundy. Ahead. Yeah, Bundy was brought to Colorado. Bundy was serving a sentence for kidnapping a girl that survived. She had a handcuff on her when she was found. And Bundy got convicted and sentenced to prison. And they brought him to Colorado to stand trial in Aspen for the murders up there. And um, he uh, escaped twice. He jumped out of the window. That's the the case
1: that I tried Quentin Wortham in, in that courtroom. We know the window he jumped out of in the Pitkin County Courthouse.
3: And, you know, Brian McConaughey. Yes. Brian's a good friend of mine. His family, you know, everybody knows McConaughey in Iran in Denver. His dad was the McConaughey that ran, you know, the mort he was a mortician, buried my relatives. I remember him at my grandfather's funeral when I was just a little boy. Brian prosecuted Bundy in Aspen and he escaped and got caught, broke his leg, all of that. Then he escapes again and from the Glenwood jail, and he ends up down in Florida. How many people he kill out down there? Right. I know he killed a little girl he got the death penalty for. Mm-hmm. He went into a sorority, killed people, killed young women there. So there is a risk to bring people that you know are going to do life or long-time sentences in a federal system to a state to prosecute them. There's that risk. There's always things like that that could happen. And Bundy is, is, a, is a prime example of that. They brought him out of a penitentiary to a place that he was able to jump out a window and escape or crawl through a vent and escape. And he did it twice. And he did it to the point where people died because of it. So, you know, was it a mistake to bring him to Aspen? He should have stood justice for murdering those women. But you know, a lot of people died based on the decision that was Boy, made. There.
1: that's so so, so interesting.
3: What about you know? You, about- you have to weigh those things, and you know, if Norm knew the future, I certainly never did. I knew Norm well, and you know, I was sad to see that he died this year. I went to his funeral. I saw you there. Um, his memorial, right? Uh, but. Uh, you know, I mean, he did the best job he could do. And the way I always saw Norm, when people would criticize him, sometimes people that worked for him would criticize him, I said, who could do a better job than Norm does? Who could stand up to what Norm stands up to? Who is a better voice for what we try to accomplish every day in the courtroom? Norm Murley had our backs. He always had your back. He always had my back. If you did something wrong, did something unethical, he called you on it. But, you know, we all understood what we were supposed to try to get done. And Norm was, I thought, was the most amazing spokesman for what we did. To criticize him for that decision, he may have been wrong. He may have been right. He made the decision, and when you're an elected official like that in a prosecution role, you got to make tough decisions. I'm sure it wasn't something he did easily.
1: I agree. Did you ever think about bringing the case when you were DA? Because it was first-degree murder. And there was no, no, in fact, most of those guys
3: were dead. Right? right, right. Most of those guys were dead by the time I was the DA. If you real, if you remember, mm-hmm. they almost all went to the federal prison. Bruce Pierce.
1: Yeah, the only guy really eligible for capital punishment was the trigger man. In my judgment, Bruce Allen Pearson. He was a convicted felon, a horrible person. He's sure. the guy who fired those bullets in, and and it's just interesting that. Uh, the, the successor of DAs, not you, could have maybe brought that charge, but nobody did.
3: I just
4: well, don't think-
1: and you
3: know, yeah. I, there was examples of that. I, you know, I used to get called and say, well, what do you think about um, Stan Garnett bringing all these cold cases? And I said, well, does he have new DNA evidence? Well, no. I said, well, you know, those are old cases that weren't prosecuted. That can be prosecuted. And you talked about prosecution, the discretion that prosecutors have. Alex Hunter didn't bring those charges. Stan Garnett did. I said, but, you know, you can't really call those cold cases. Wasn't like they went unsolved. They were solved. They knew who the suspect was. They just were never brought. So those are old cases that are now being prosecuted. And there is no statute of limitations on that, and so, you know, I I applaud Stan Garnett for that. But you can't call them cold cases; they're old cases. The guy still live at the address he lived at when you investigated it ten years ago. We'll go arrest him.
1: You know, right? And you're not I mean, doing it on some of uh, you know criminal mischief charge. You're thinking about murders because right. people Those should not be able cases. to get away with murder and. Not many did with Mitch Morrissey on guard. I think about the legacy, and I know you write about it. Again, people should get this book uh, from Amazon. Just Google Denver DA Mitch Morrissey. You're going to have some reading pleasure. And as I just demonstrated, it's hard-hitting when it needs to be. And we both love Norm. It doesn't mean we always agree about everything, But there's a love and a respect and an admiration. And I think back fondly to Norm Early. He and I had our disagreements. Dale Tooley, who hired me. And I think they were giants. And then when uh, Dale Tooley tried to be mayor of Denver, Norm Early succeeded him. And then Norm wanted to be mayor of Denver. And Bill Ritter succeeded him, appointed by Governor Romer. Norm had been appointed by Governor Lamb. Then you succeeded uh Bill Ritter, who went on to be governor, he was smarter than all of us. He said, forget about mayor. I'm going right for the governor's job. And damned yeah. if he didn't win. But what about you, Mitch See, You're young. You've got energy. Denver needs a new mayor. What about you?
3: I don't live in Denver. You could move. I moved. Oh, I don't no. live in Denver that's, anymore, that's Craig. That's my
1: excuse, too.
3: My mother-in-law died in a house that she'd lived in since 1959, and it is an incredible place. And I was lucky enough to be able to move there. And it's not far from Denver. Uh, It borders Denver. It's in Lakewood. Um, So any DA's office I'd run for would be uh, Jeffco. Any uh, mayor's office I would run for would uh, would be Lakewood. Uh, So, you know, I'm kind of out of the jurisdiction, so I'm out of the running. But I'll tell you one thing I'm very concerned about, the decision that the Denver voters have to make. Because Denver is at a crossroad. Denver is confronted with all kinds of problems, not just criminal justice problems, not just a police department that has an inability to retain good officers, or officers in general that has a uh, an inability to recruit, just like every other law enforcement agency in Colorado, where you have to give them bonuses and benefits just to apply. Where you have you know two hundred open spots. If we can't, if we don't have police officers in Denver, in Lakewood, in those places, we make it so. Um, hard to do that job that people won't do it, then Denver is going into a crisis mode that I, that we haven't seen since probably back in the day when Denver was just a dead city at night. It was a dangerous city Mm -hmm. at night and we're getting back to some of those kinds of things. And the people of Denver have a really important decision on who they're going to elect the next mayor of Denver because the next mayor of Denver is going to have to address this homeless issue that we have. They're going to have to address this fentanyl crisis that the city faces, and they're going to have to address, you know, the lack of being able to get law enforcement to enforce the laws on our streets. And it, you know, It's going to be somebody that's going to have to do a lot of hard and tough things. The people of Denver that are voting for mayor should look at these people's past, look at what they did in the legislature, look what they did in the jobs they had in the past, and make decisions based on the things that they've done that have created and helped cause this problem. And they shouldn't vote for somebody that's done that. They should look at somebody that knows how to run a city that size of Denver. I ran a small DA's office. I had 300 people. Look at the mayor. The mayor, look at the budget that he has or she has. Look at the kinds of issues they're confronted with. Denver could go south. Some people think it has, but it could go, it could get a whole lot worse before it's going to get better, and whoever takes on that job I sure hope they elect the right person because, uh, you know, there are some real problems out there that need to be addressed.
1: There are 24 people in the race. Anybody stand out?
3: Well, you know, there, there are people with the history that you need to look at. Were they anti-law enforcement when they were in the legislature because they're going to be anti-law enforcement when they're mayor?
1: Well, I'm thinking they, about people in right now. Leslie Herod. is she the kind of person? I don't you're even know
3: the, all of the people that are. What in about it, Mike right?
1: Johnston? He, he, didn't his wife work with you in Denver?
3: Yeah. Oh, yeah. his wife was one of my deputies. She was, you know, she was incredibly good at family violence cases. She's a great trial lawyer. Um, You know, I'm I'm just trying to hear about
1: somebody who you would support. Is there anybody?
3: I haven't made that decision. Um, You know, I'm waiting until they all came in. Johnson just came in, didn't he? Like in the last couple of weeks. I think somebody would be smart to get your support. Yeah, I I think that that may or may not be the case. But, you know, before I give my support, I want to know, you know, are the people in? Is there a better person coming in? that would be better suited to answer the questions that Denver has, is facing for the next four years, eight years. Because the one thing I can tell you is I, I don't live in the proper Denver proper. I'm out of it by less than a block. But it's important to me that Denver remain a safe, viable place uh, to live. My family lives here. My, my family has always lived here. You know, short you of are from Ireland.
1: You are Denver. You know? I mean, the, the service you perform for Denver and this podcast is amazing. I can't thank you enough, Mitch. It sure. occurs to me that you and I, native Denver sons, we're both just a scintilla out of Denver now. And there's a reason. And I do think Denver's at a tipping point. And I hope it tips in the right direction. I know you do, too.
3: And I think you'll do what you can with your voice out there and these podcasts that you do, Craig, to help make sure that happens. And that's why one of the reasons why I came on your podcast, because you tell the truth and you tell it like you believe it and you care about where we live. And I do, too. So I appreciate you having me on. And, you know, anytime you need me to come on your podcast. Don't hesitate to contact me. What
1: if I need you to run a down, out, and up? Could you still do it? Sell a down pattern and then break for the end zone?
3: I could, but it wouldn't be as fast.
1: (laughs) And my arm wouldn't be as good, but I still think we could catch them on the pump fake and score. Mitch, thanks so much for returning to Craig's Lawyer's Lounge. Really appreciate it. Happy holidays, and we didn't even talk about your wonderful wife Maggie, the work you did at the Rose Andam Center. You're just too much, man. United Data Connect, this Denver DA's book, you've got it all going, Mitch Morrissey. Thank you again.
3: I appreciate it, Craig. Happy holidays to you and your family. I hope you get to spend some quality time with your sons and your wife, and thanks for and, having me And the, the dogs. And I the got
1: dogs, too. That's what empty nesters do. Thanks, Mitch. See you. All right, Craig. Bye. Bye. Okay, here's the thing. You've been hurt. Maybe, God forbid, someone's been killed. You don't know what to do. If it happened in Colorado, please get a hold of me. Check out my website, craigscoloradolaw.com, craigscoloradolaw.com, because I have four decades of experience. Sadly, I've helped a lot of people who have been hurt terribly through no fault of their own. 303-734-7156. Please call Craig, Craig Silverman, a voice for victims. 303-734-7156. Oh, Troubadour, thanks for coming over. Thanks for giving me birthday presents. It's so darn nice of you, and you wrote the greatest card thanking me for being part of this show. Holy cow, I'm thanking you, Dave Kunders. Thanks for being with me on this episode 127, and we are recording on the 16th,
4: which happens to be my birthday. Happy birthday, Craig. I'm happy to be here, and thank you for making me a part of your show.
1: I am exhilarated because I just did a lengthy, wonderful interview with Mitch Morrissey, and I think I solved the Sean benet Ramsey case at the same time.
4: That's some big news there.
1: That's a birthday present. People can listen and evaluate for themselves, but I think John Ramsey got the order of things wrong. I just think there are clues a plenty between Mitch Morrissey and the sound I've delivered from John Ramsey going on a podcast with Megan Kelly. Podcasting is where it's happening, right? It's where it happens here. Twitter is going bye-bye. This Elon Musk is having a public breakdown. He doesn't seem to be a good guy. I don't know how this ends.
4: It didn't he, didn't he, um, today or yesterday, he... he... Banished journalist. Yes. The CNN For his printing and that kind stuff he
1: didn't like, which is he's supposed to be Mr. Free Speech. Right.
4: That's his whole platform, right? Yeah, I guess he can do what he wants to do, but it, he seems like he's shooting himself in the foot.
1: Well, he's, he says he's afraid other people are going to shoot him and that people on Twitter are giving assassination coordinates to him uh, so that people can cause him harm or his family. So he's getting a little paranoid of course, because you're paranoid doesn't mean that people aren't after you.
4: And that's true.
1: I'll tell you what's true is the way you deliver the perfect song every week. I told you I was going to talk about the Club Q massacre, which is horrific. Five people murdered, 17 people shot, injured. And you came up with a great song that's upbeat, but it tackles the subject of hate, um, tell everybody about is sun still shining?
4: Well, you know it's when I when you asked for uh, when you said that you'd be you'd be talking about the Club Q you know massacre incident horrific thing. Um, I thought about a healing song, and I, and as I listened to the lyrics again, I realized wow this could you know this can lend itself to to uh, to an event uh, um, a hate a hate infused event like this. And it's you know like it starts out crawling from the wreckage and that kind of thing. Right. Um, I think I was at the time I was more. um, It was it was the pandemic, and I was thinking about people whose lives had been altered and and kind of truncated and stopped, (laughs) you know, and coming coming through something like this and what and what it would take, you know.
1: And that pandemic has fed into hate, division in our society. It's unfortunate. Over the vaccine, over is the government trying to manipulate us? It's another thing that we need to rise past in this country. And uh, it's unfortunate, but we always have a chance with the sun still rising.
4: Right, right. It's a song of hope. It's a song of, of, uh, you know, yearning and healing. But but it definitely points to some, uh, you know, like you said, hate and the kind of thing that... that, uh that we're experiencing today. I even I was even reading about um, you know some of the Proud Boys now or the, even now just two weeks after Club Q in Colorado Springs um, how they're protesting some LGBTQ right uh, um, you know protests or drag queen protest.
1: Yeah, I'd like to find yeah. out more. You know, he did it right before it was uh, uh, trans uh, you know recognition day. So to me, that's not coincidental. Right at midnight, he's going to start shooting up a place on Trans Day. I don't know why he did it, but we debate with uh, Mitch Morrissey whether there should be a death penalty. You remember uh, the Tsarnaev brothers who did the Boston Massacre or the Boston Marathon bombing? yeah. Because Massachusetts did not have capital punishment, the feds prosecuted the guy A young man, remember he was on the cover of GQ and convicted him and he got sentenced to death. So I wonder if that's going to happen in Colorado now that our death penalty is gone. Right. People are thinking about it.
4: It becomes a a federal offense when they consider that it was a hate crime. Is that right? The
1: problem is the feds have not made a sexual orientation part of their hate crime. So I'm not sure it's a statutory aggravator, but I think you could still find a way to wedge it into federal court and seek the death penalty on some other grounds, mass murder, for example. I don't know that that will happen, and I'm not sure that it should. I'm not a complete death penalty zealot. This guy's a little young for my taste, and what I've heard about his background. It is terrible, horrible father, not a great mother, horrible influences. He had never really been through the criminal justice system before. So I'm not sure the feds should take over, but it's part of the discussion. I just want to get back to my birthday. You made it. God is involved and stuff like that. The miracle of life. And you and I, We just have a a similar sensibility, I think. We're both Jewish, but we don't have all the answers. And it's probably sacrilegious that we say, Hashem, God, when we see the sun. Right. But that's good evidence of God, Hashem. And we say, bye. When the sun goes down and we're walking, what does the sun mean to you? It's in, what, about seven-eighths of all your songs? (laughs)
4: The Sun is is uh, it, it is creator it, it's it, the sun can be like God I mean the sun gives us life yeah gives us life every day right right the, 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 without the sun for even a few minutes this this earth would would be cloaked in darkness and cold and everything would perish isn't so. that
1: something I just thought of this right now but God delivered us his son without which we could not go on right? Whoever put the universe in motion put the sun in the perfect place to keep us alive, right?
4: Right, or put us in the perfect place.
1: Right, but, but then the Christians believe that God delivered the perfect son, S-O-N.
4: Yes, to, S-O-N. Uh,
1: yeah. It, it is, it's,
4: it's a play on words, but it's the word son. Right, and, but and,
1: it, it shows that we all kind of need a a conduit to God right? A, instead of us— talking to Hashem out there somewhere, we focus on one evidence. Right. The proof is in the stars. Wasn't that Shakespeare? Something like
4: that. You'd know better than me.
1: Oh, you're the star (laughs) on this show. Dave Gunders, our troubadour. Listen to A Sun Still Shining. Shabbat
4: shalom, my friend. Back at you, and Happy birthday, Craig.
1: Thank you, troubadour. A Sun Still Shining by Dave Gunders.
4: Sending out a message Crawling from the wreckage Anybody left gonna take this car Train leaving the station Crying for the nation Giving in to hate to lose it all Life goes by in the blink of an eye Little ray of light Little patch of blue sky Bringing me everything worth knowing My head in the clouds, I'm dreaming out loud I'm turning from the crowd and I keep on going I don't need no heavenly wings to fly I got mine As long as there's a the sun Still Shine. We're heading out of town, baby. Got the top down, an open road. Anywhere is fine. The wind in your head and seeing you there. Behind, find some peace for a little while. When you smile, I know that the sun still shine Reality shifting, the darkness lifted. Knowing your love is here. Find.
1: Michael, of course, is a great sponsor of my show, but more than that, he's my lawyer, my end-of-life planning lawyer, and I've got two dogs. What about you?
0: I have two dogs right now as well.
1: And not only do you love your dogs at home with your kids and your wife, but you get involved with dog issues in your law practice. Tell everybody about that.
0: So, I will write pet trusts, which is, you can earmark, money to take care of your pets um you know a lot of people you know they've got their dogs and they love their dogs but then if somebody were to you know if you're if you were to pass away you know who's going to take your dogs who would who would love your dogs as much as you do i don't know that anybody would love your dogs as much as you do but like i grew up with dogs and so if i were to pass away then my parents or my siblings could take the dogs so when you set up a pet trust you can dictate who's going to get those dogs and then who you can leave money to take care of the dogs as well.
1: I like working with you and I think you are ahead of your time. You have 15 different locations. How cool is
0: that? It's, it is nice to be able to go to all the different locations and you know meet people where it's comfortable and more convenient for them.
1: And nobody wants to drive from one part of Metro Denver to the other to meet with a lawyer. You will come to them?
0: Yep. And I'll deal with traffic so you don't have to.
1: Tell us how people can get in touch with you.
0: My direct phone number is 720-394-6887. Or they can go to my website, which is mobileestateplanning.com. And again, that's mobileestateplanning.com. And there's even a schedule. There's a book an appointment link on on the website.
1: All right, Michael Bailey. Thank you. Hey, I told you this was going to be a great show. Thanks, Troubadour. As Sun Still Shining, love the optimism of that song. We need to fight hate. We need smart law enforcement. Mitch Morrissey provided that to Denver with a passion you don't get in just a normal person. He's got a fire burning within United Data Connect. How good is that for him to solve old cases by using DNA? Hey, John Ramsey. God bless you. If you were falsely accused in this, even the insinuation, my heart goes out to you. And I think that's a possibility. And if you are innocent, why not contact Mitch Morrissey? Have his DNA company work with you. I'd love to see that. I'd like to know who killed Jean Benet. I sure do appreciate you listening. Until the next show, tell a friend, subscribe. Five stars is wonderful. This show in particular, I think, deserves it. Until next time, maybe not till 2023, Happy New Year, Happy Holidays, Merry Christmas, Happy Hanukkah. Thank you.
0: Thank you for listening. Tune in live every Saturday morning, 9 to noon, Mountain Time. Visit thecraigsilvermanshow.com for the podcast, blog, and more. Be sure to subscribe on all major podcasting platforms to be updated when new episodes are available. This has been The Craig Silverman Show.